Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 109 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we're going a little bit off the beaten path today, but uh, also right into my own personal wheelhouse as an X-Fan here, because we're going to be taking a look at something written by Fabian Niciesa, who was uh, one of the uh, architects of my X-Men, the X-Men that I uh, fell in love with back in the early 1990s. Uh, He's also a fellow who is... uh, Somewhat roundabout responsible for me becoming really good friends with a really good friend of mine. Uh, jumping back, probably, boy, about three years, probably. Uh, Reggie and I had covered New Warriors number one on uh, the Cosmic Treadmill, and we liked it. You know, it's a, it's a decent enough issue. It's a good issue. Uh, well, this uh, fella wrote to us and said that uh, he really enjoyed the show and he also really enjoyed New Warriors until the wheels fell off of it. Um, it's been a long time since I've read the entirety of New Warriors, but, you know, that happens with a lot of properties, a lot of series. Uh, you go through little lulls here. Well, he responded to our post that was announcing or sharing the episode on social media, and, uh, well, we tagged Mr. Nisiesa, and he was kind enough to give us a, uh, a retweet there, but he was still attached to the, uh, the like, the, you know, the tweet thread, I guess. And so when my buddy mentioned that the book went off the rails, well, Fabian Niciesa got to see that. And he wrote back, hey, you know, I'm, I'm still right here. And uh, this new pal uh, sent me a message saying, hey, I'm sorry that I did that. I didn't know that Niciesa was, uh, was on the uh, tweet. And, you know, we shrugged it off. It's like, what are you going to do, right? I mean, he was speaking honestly. And I doubt that uh, Mr. Niciesa took it all that personally. I think it was just a... Uh, you know, hey, you know, some people see the things you say sort of a situation, which, uh, hey, it was, you know, it was what it was. I think that was the first time that something like that had happened to uh, to Reggie and I. So it's uh, one of those things that always kind of stands out. And it also was the roundabout way that I, I became pals with my buddy Dave, uh, who we still will refer to uh, Fabian Niciesa as Fabian Not-So-Niciesa. Which isn't really funny, but it's also kind of funny at the same time. Anyway, enough of that. Let's talk about what we're here to talk about. Now, this is Juggernaut number one. And if uh, the Marvel Wiki is to be believed, it's actually Juggernaut volume three, number one, because there were two other one-shots. There was uh, one back in the mid-90s, and then there was a Juggernaut the Eighth Day thing that tied in with, uh, I think it tied in with the Avengers and Quicksilver and stuff like that, probably right around the turn of the century or so. 
And uh, so this is our third one. Juggernaut Volume 3, number one, had a November 2020 cover date. The story's called Picking Up the Pieces, written by Fabian Natsonaisiesa, with art by Ron Garney, colors by Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale September 23rd, 2020. And it's interesting here, we have a first issue of a series here, and it's not $5. So, you know, thank heaven for little favors, right? Anyway, we crack this thing open, and we open with a text page. So maybe this is a, maybe this is a Dawn of X book. Huh? Nah, it's actually not quite an info page. It's more of a quick and dirty internal pep talk to Kane Marco, the juggernaut. And our story begins with him demolishing a building while a pair of millennial types film him with their phones. Turns out that Juggernaut's actually working for these two, and he's actually working for a big company that you might have heard of. And they're basically using him to... Well, tear down buildings. Damage Control, the, the company he's working for, will swoop in to clean things up. So here we are with a business relationship with uh, city backing, actually. So it's everything's on the up and up. Now, Kane remarks that he'll tear down the rest of the block at no charge. One of Kane's contacts, a Maria Hanklin, informs him and us that there are a lot of squatters, young, young people, hanging out in the buildings down the road. And, as if on cue, those same squatters start throwing rocks at the Juggernaut. Which, I mean, what's that gonna do? Then, there's a strange wave of kinetic power that washes over the area, and it would appear that one of these squatters is probably a mutant. Juggernaut realizes that this young mutant is likely in dire need of guidance and training, and wouldn't you know it, there's an island that serves exactly that purpose right now. We flash back, though, to several months earlier, and we see a depowered Kane Marco in limbo. Now, this is stemming from Ilyana Rasputin yoinking the Sidorak gem out of him and banishing him to the place. We do get an editorial footnote, but all it says is that this happened in Uncanny X-Men number 21, and by this point, I want to say there have been around five of those, so your guess is as good as mine. Anywho, the depowered Kane drags his juggernaut gear along with him for weeks on end. Here you got a picture of a scrawny dude just pulling all this armor behind him. We jump back to the present. Juggernaut's trying to find the squatting kids, claiming that he's not there to hurt anybody. He would just like to help the mutant. And he's again pelted with rocks. And I mean, he's the juggernaut. That's not going to do much. Then everything around him begins to slow down. The mutant he's dealing with has the ability to slow down kinetic motion, which, as far as mutant powers go, is pretty creative. He is then attacked by this new mutant, a girl called D-Cell, which I'm guessing is a reference to deceleration and not the, you know, the big fat battery. Now, it's worth noting she might have time-traveling abilities, too, because she's wearing a t-shirt I'm sure that I saw at a Hot Topic circa 1998 or so. You see, it's a hand with three fingers up, right? Your, your, your pointer finger, your middle finger, and your ring finger sticking up. And then it says, read between the lines. You get it? You get it? It's like the shirt's giving you the finger. You get it? Oh, boy. Anyway, they fight for a bit. Or, well, they try to stop one another for a bit. It's probably more like it. And it's a really cool-looking scene here. We got force against force, right? Until D-Cell goes down. So it's like a, it's like a standoff here. And the ch- Juggernaut's charging towards her. She's got her powers pushing him back. She's overwhelmed. So she goes down. Then Juggernaut, whose momentum catches up with him, crashes right through a wall, covering poor D-Cell in the rubble. Now he digs her out while some more millennials film this on their phone. Next stop, 
the Bellevue Trauma Center where Kane has brought D-Cell. Now, she suffered a couple of busted ribs, but she'll be okay. Juggernaut waits for her to wake up, and when she wakes up, he tells her that he'd like to help her. And this relates to another flashback, because you see, D-Cell is at a crossroads, right? Well, not too long ago, Juggernaut was at the literal crossroads in Limbo. It took him 30 days to find his way there, and all he's got now is the Juggernaut helmet. He was, you know, he's being, he's depowered, so he couldn't manage to drag the entire thing with him for an entire month. So all he's got is the helmet. Kane places the helmet on one of the limbs of the crossroads thing, and he's zapped out of limbo. Uh, I'm not sure if this was a sort of sacrifice or what. Um, I probably understand just about as much about Limbo as I do Otherworld, and I think they're both quite boring. Um, we jump back to the present. We learn that D-Cell is a uh, YouTube superstar. Well, a Rockstube superstar. Uh, she posted a video of their fight, and it got over a million views, which, as we all know, is the most important thing in the world. She's also quite adamant that she is, in fact, not a mutant. But I suppose time will eventually tell. She basically gives him the quick and dirty on, like, any number of Marvel origin stories, claiming it to be her own. She calls it a science accident, which, I mean, that's like half of them, right? Oh, and in, in addition to the Juggernaut fight, Diesel and her squatting friends, they post their prank videos to Rockstube, which I hope, really hope we never get to see. Um, now, while sharing stories, Kane plainly states that he's currently under the employ of damage control, which, I mean, we pretty much figured that by now, but it's nice to have actual confirmation. Juggernaut asks what D-Cell's real name is, but she ain't talking, and he agrees not to press the issue. We wrap up the story with D-Cell handing over her phone to show Kane some damage that might be in dire need of controlling. And we look on the screen, and it is the Hulk. And that is the first issue of this Juggernaut miniseries. Next episode, we will be talking about the free comic book day story featuring our X-Men, leading, hopefully, <laughs> right into X of Tens. But let's talk about Juggernaut here for a bit. This wasn't quite as tied into our Dawn of X books as I thought it might have been. I could have sworn that I'd read somewhere that that this series starts off with uh, Juggernaut being... Um, Denied uh, access to Krakoa Or denied the option to live on Krakoa It might be more like it I could have sworn I read that somewhere Maybe I didn't read that somewhere Maybe I dreamt it Or maybe it's something that'll be Maybe it's an issue 2 or issue 3 I don't know I guess time will have to tell for us here Because we do have Exitens coming up So if we do get back to this story It'll be after that Um if anybody out there would like for me to include the rest of the Juggernaut miniseries into X-Lapsed, please reach out and let me know, and uh, I'd be happy to do it. Now, the only tie to our mainline X-Books here is a mention of Krakoa being a place where D-Cell might learn a little bit more about her powers. And really, that's all we need, right? I mean, this isn't... this really isn't an X-Men story. This is a story of uh, the Juggernaut on a redemption arc here. He's trying to do things, uh, you know... On the straight and narrow He's working for damage control uh, I don't know the story where he went to Limbo I'm assuming that was probably In the most recent Uncanny X-Men volume I know I joked about them being <laughs> Could be from any of them 
but I'm pretty sure it was probably in the pre-Hoxpox, um, and I mean the just barely pre-Hoxpox, like Volume 5, I think it was, of Uncanny. I'm guessing that's where it happened, um, because that wasn't too terribly long ago. I don't know how the story went, though. I could have sworn that Magic had yanked the Sidorak gem out, like in Volume 2 of Uncanny, and somehow Colossus got it because he became the Juggernaut for a minute. I don't think it's that one, though, because I don't think Juggernaut's been on the shelf that long. I, I'm pretty sure he was part of the opening arc for X-Men Blue, which came, you know, several years after that. I'm guessing that as this miniseries rolls on, we're going to see more and more about uh, Kane's time in Limbo and how he uh, maybe had his, you know, come to the side of angels uh, meeting with himself. I could be completely wrong, but that's just how I see this going, and that's perfectly fine. You know, I've got no problem with that. I gotta say, I am getting a little bit tired of turning all of our bad guys into good guys. Um, but, I mean, this wouldn't be Kane's first dalliance with uh, the good guys, right? He was, uh, he was a full-fledged X-Man during the, uh, that run that we don't like to talk about, right? I do have faith that Mr. Nisiesa will uh, steer this one the way it needs to go here, so I'm sure this is going to turn out really, really good. Um, is it something that I'm going to run out and grab the next five issues of? Maybe. Maybe. Um, it certainly wasn't on my radar before this, but after reading the first issue here, and uh, I kind of dug it. You know, I, you know, I can do without all the you know filming on the cell phone sort of stuff here and this uh, rocks tube stuff. I, I don't need that in my comics, but. I mean, it is current year, right? So uh, we're just going to get that kind of stuff from this point on. Let's talk about the art for a minute here, because it uh, I misread something, I mi- or I misunderstood uh, a page in this. It was, was not entirely clear to me. And that's not to say I didn't like the art. I really did like the art. It's been a long time since I've seen uh, Ron Garney's work here, so it was really, really cool to see his work again. But that page where Juggernaut is charging toward D-Cell, and D-Cell is pushing him back here, the way it's drawn, I had to look at it a few times here because it isn't 100% clear that D-Cell just um, exhausts herself and, and passes out. At first glance, it looked like she actually managed to stop the Juggernaut with her powers there, and... I about threw the uh, threw the book across the room. It's like, okay, we're gonna bring in a brand new, you know, kid hero, and is is going to this is gonna be the first person to stop the Juggernaut? Are we really doing this? But that was just my misunderstanding. So uh, I guess a uh, an unnecessary mea culpa for misreading that. But uh, I do think that that scene could have been um, more clearly laid out there. Of course, you know, when you read past it, it's clear what happened, but. For that page, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) No, we're not bringing in a brand new person to stop the juggernaut, are we? Because, I mean, that's kind of how it goes with these new young heroes, right? It's they, They stand around and they're told how cool they are. And they tell each other how cool they are. And that's part of the reason why my Marvel uh, pull list became much, much smaller over the past several years. And, and, you know, in fairness, DC does the same thing as well. So I was a little concerned, but uh, concerned for nothing. <laughs> concerned for nothing. I uh, really enjoyed the art here, really enjoyed the story. It was uh, exactly what it needed to be, right? And that's really all I got to say about it. Uh, if if you folks would like me to uh, con- include issues two through, I think, six, I think it's a six-issue mini, in X-Lapsed, once we're out the other end of X-Attends, please reach out and let me know, and uh, we will we will do that. 
But speaking of reaching out, let's dip into the mailbag here, okay? We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing New Mutants number 12. Now he says, You may have been looking forward to this issue, but I had been dreading it. There had been so much politically naive material in recent X-Books that I was worried that we would get an obvious straw man as the person behind Docs. That's the anti-mutant online magazine. It turns out that I was pleasantly surprised. It wasn't subtle, but it didn't hit you with a sledgehammer either. Ultimately, it's a pretty good ending to the first part of the Doc story. Well, I didn't know that it's a that that we're going to be revisiting Docs. I, I, you know, you guys are further in the future than I am, <laughs> or I'm further in the past, I guess, because you guys are actually in the present. But uh, I am still in the past, so I don't know that Docs comes back. I'm. That makes the uh, that makes the medicine go down a bit smoother because if this was a one and done and we were building to this. Eh, it wasn't terribly satisfying. It was not terribly satisfying. Damien continues. Why do people keep using Nova Roma in stories? <laughs> there were a hundred of the original New Mutants issues, and they keep returning to the worst story in the run. Seriously, I'd prefer it if they brought back Bird Boy. It probably doesn't help that the inhabitants of Nova Roma have had more retcons than the Phoenix at this point. I even think they've all been murdered before. Yeah, yeah, when I see Nova Roma... Uh, you know, it's funny, because I keep talking about the thing, the X-Men stories that I don't like. And I wonder if folks listening ever get to the point where, the, where they think, are there any X-Men stories that he does like? Because I, I hate the Savage Land, I hate space, I hate Nova Roma. <laughs> I mean, all these, like... I, I, like, I don't need the X-Men to be street level. I don't need them to be Daredevil, right? I don't need them to be Spider-Man. And, oh, God only knows with Spider-Man nowadays, I haven't touched that in ages, so for all I know, he, he could be revealed as a, as a half-alien, whatever the hell. But I, I, I seriously wonder, if uh, if people wonder about me, like, what, what stories does... What possible X-Men stories could this person like, since he hates everything? And I I assure you, I don't hate everything. But uh, Nova Roma, yeah, not, not a fan of Nova Roma. It feels like one of those, um, just a weird tacked on sort of place from like the Claremont bank of stories right it's like well we'll mention that she's from this place and then we'll go back there a few times or we'll, we'll mention that they have this relation and then we'll we'll dig into that later a lot of the things I love about Claremont but when it's something that I find boring and, and we keep going back to it yeah not my favorite sort of thing uh, Damien wraps up with anyway I'm about to go listen to your landmark 100th episode now and until Nova Roma is revealed to be in Nebraska, make my next lapsed. Well, thank you so much, Damien, for uh, writing in about this very odd issue here. And and you're right, I was definitely looking forward to this thing. I don't know why <laughs> I was looking forward to it so much, but I was expecting uh, I was expecting a lot from that. Well, not a lot, but more from that issue. And hey, if uh, you remember my power rankings for the Dawn of X Wave One Number Twelve, it was my top number 12 just because it wasn't the other books i guess but thanks again <laughs> and uh next our friend jody is talking about x-men number 12 brief thoughts on x-men number 12 as i finished the issue it was certainly not the first time i thought i don't understand any of that i can't wait for chris to tell me what it's all about and thanks for giving it a try yeah i did try i don't know if i made it any clearer for anybody this was X-Men number 12 uh, was the exposition dump that gets us to X of 10s, right? And 
it was just so crammed full of information that I'm sure some people find wildly interesting. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those people. So I guess we can add Arako stories to uh, stories that Chris doesn't like. <laughs> uh, Jody continues. I've been reading comics my entire life, and I'm certainly no slouch. Some writers, certainly Hickman to me anyways, seemingly have a I'm smarter than you try to keep up with me attitude at times. This seemed abundantly so during his Avengers run, which I just gave up on. And you know, I've talked about this before here, where um, I don't want to, you know, besmirch or project, but uh, there is certainly a tone in a lot of writers' work. That, uh, that is similar to that And I I blame us I, I've said this before But I mean If you were a writer Or anything If you were any sort of Entertainer or content creator And you were told time after time After time after time That you are a genius By anybody who looks at your work Then you're gonna start thinking you are We've seen it in both the big companies. We've seen it a lot of places. You know, if a writer is told that that their work is the, you know, the best take on insert character here, then they're going to start to believe that, and uh, they will start questioning anybody who uh, dares say otherwise. Um, now, it's not to say that Hickman isn't the, an extremely intelligent guy, because clearly he is. Uh, I just think that he has different interests. Than uh, a lot of us do Or maybe just some of us do uh, He might find the history and the lore Of Arako and Krakoa To be You know, the next the next big thing the, the, the coolest thing in the world Where, sorry, I don't agree And of course, as I mentioned during that episode That has a lot more to do With the pacing Than, than the actual story beats Because there was a lot of interesting stuff there Just the way it was presented it didn't allow any of the interesting bits to breathe So it was just like, here's information, here's information, here's information Keep up, keep up, keep up, keep up And we're done And to me that doesn't work Especially with, you know, we were fiddle friggin' around with stupid comedy books For the four issues that preceded this one And and cash-ins for Empire That this could have been fleshed out so much better Hickman could have taken us on a ride Instead of taking us up to the top story In an elevator and then dropping us to the floor Which is basically what we got This was not a ride, this was a Dead drop Uh, Jody continues I would say I have an average to above average Understanding of X-Men and X-Men lore And sometimes you hit a plot point like this And you feel like, boy, what am I missing here? So when I hear someone like Yourself who is a You don't have to say it, I will A bit of a scholar and is lost It makes you feel somewhat disinterested I don't know how you get into a book like this With a $3.99 price tag nonetheless And expect to bring in a single new reader Much less not alienate the ones already buying it True statement, true statement Um, But one correction here I am a certified fake-ass comics scholar So that's, uh, (laughs) that's one thing here But yeah, this was a... This was a toughie This was definitely a toughie I would I mean It's almost like cliche To To say like Every book should be Every book can be someone's first Because I think that ship sailed Long, long, long time ago Unfortunately But to your point here I think um, Anybody listening to this show Has a pretty good grasp On uh, On some 
aspects of X-Men lore and X-Men history, or just an appreciation for any sort of lore or history, regardless of the topic here. We all understand the concept of world-building. We all understand concepts of characterization and plots building upon itself and growing and expanding and just coming alive. X-Men number 12 didn't do that. It forced it. It forced so much story into a tiny funnel that what we got out the other end didn't even it wasn't even recognizable as a story. It was just like here's some distilled stuff you need to care about, you need to know about. Uh, and maybe for all I know the interesting parts of this expositional dump will be fleshed out during X of Tens here. Because I, I know I know there are listeners to this show who didn't buy X-Men number 12, but enjoyed the X of Swords crossover event. So maybe a lot of these things that are being distilled into, what, 18 pages? I don't know how long comics are these days. We're not allowed to count the pages. We get, we get laughed at by the pros if we do that. So we'll say... 18 to 20 pages, they distilled the story. Maybe it'll get revisited during X of Swords. Maybe we're going to get half an issue dedicated to those crucifixes. We're going to get half an issue devoted to uh, a Genesis. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed, and we will try to maintain our optimism. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there uh, on X-Men number 12 there, Jody. Thanks so much. Uh, we're going to go next to Andrew Franklin is talking about Cable number 4. Now he starts with, Life has gotten busy and made me behind on the podcast, but today I finally have time to catch up. A few hours of X-Lapse will make good company while I try and survive the New Jersey MVC, or DMV, as it might be called in other states and in the media, and do some back-issue bin diving. Yeah, we always called it the DMV in New York, but out here it's the MVD in Arizona. So I still call it the DMV, and I get looked at sideways. But uh, I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to keep you company while you're uh, waiting in line or safely standing six feet behind someone who uh, can't find their ID and uh, holds up the line for Lord only knows how long. Hopefully, at the time I'm recording this, hopefully you're already back home safe and sound. But uh, I appreciate spending the time with you nonetheless. Andrew continues. I'm behind on my reading, too, so you and everyone listening have future knowledge I've yet to experience. But from where I am in the time stream, Cable continues to be the best X-book. The biggest thing to stand out to me this issue was the art change. I actually had to check a few times to make sure Phil Noto was still the credited artist. After the third page, everything on the page has an outline, and there seems to be more inking in general. Noto has always had a painterly style, his pages looking more like watercolor than a traditional illustration, so this was a big change. I'm not complaining because it looks great. I just wonder why the style changed three pages into the issue. I didn't notice. Does that make me a bad, fake-ass comics reviewer? I didn't even notice. (laughs) I didn't notice there was a change in the art style here, and I don't have the book next to me now, otherwise I'd, I'd pick it up and flip through it to see... But uh, Noto, versatile artist, versatile artist. Yeah, I'm gonna definitely have to dig that issue back up again and give it another look just uh, to see what I uh, see what I can notice this time around. 
Andrew continues, The bit with the nuke and Cable's arm confused me as well the first time I read it. Now I'm fairly certain that that teen Cable pulled a Bill and Ted. In the original movie, I assume you haven't seen it. No, I have not. There's a scene where they need to get a set of keys, but those keys went missing a few days ago. So they have a conversation about how they should go back in time to before the keys went missing and then hide the keys behind a specific bush for them to find in the future. While they're talking, they check behind the bush and the keys are there. They realize the keys went missing because their future selves went back in time and hid them behind this bush, and that they will have to remember to go back in time at some point and take the keys and put them behind the bush for themselves to find. As I can make sense of it, that's basically what Kid Cable does. Resolves to, at a future time, set up the events so they'll have a nuke bomb arm in the present. A classic Bill and Ted maneuver. I think you solved it. I've never seen Bill and Ted. I do, I, my only Bill and Ted knowledge, I played the Nintendo game and it was horrible, but uh, I do live probably about a half hour away from the Circle K that was in that movie. So uh, I've been to the uh, the Circle K where where something is a foot or something is a rye or I don't remember the line. I've never seen the movie, but uh, I have been there. But that is that is as good an explanation as any, and I think you hit the nail on the head there. It wasn't made 100% clear, but I, I think you're 100% right there. Andrew continues, Like you always say, it's harder to talk about a great issue, and that's how I'm feeling now. Not really much more to say other than Cable Number 4 continues this book's great fun run. I really enjoyed it, and I hope Duggan and Noto continue to work magic through the upcoming crossover. So, until we get the introduction of Teen Strife, make mine next left. Oh, could you imagine that? Oh, we probably shouldn't even put that out into the universe, because I, I, I... Oh, man, that's going to happen, isn't it? Yeah, we're probably going to get a teen strife. <laughs> now, I totally agree uh, on everything you said there. It, it is so much harder to talk about a great issue, and I really hope that Duggan and Noto keep it, keep on keeping on throughout, throughout X of Tens. And I think Noto actually contributes to some other X-books uh, during X of Tens. I could be completely wrong or misremembering my sorting, but uh, I think he might actually... Uh, I think we might see him in some other titles, which, hey, nothing wrong with that, right? But uh, that will do it for our mailbag here. Uh, if anybody would like to write in and chat me up about anything you want, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Also, xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com if you don't have any interest in any of the other stuff I do. Which, hey, that's all good. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook. Find our little group, 90s X-Men. It's like the Facebook.com, one of those slash things, 90s X-Men. And you'll find us, and you can talk with us about whatever you want. Uh, you can listen to anything from the Chris and Reggie Audio Archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all of your noise aggregation device things. Um, I think that'll do it, actually. You know what, a little bit of housekeeping here, because... I mentioned this during um, Ex Lapsination episode 3. That's the Sunday special series where we're looking at the Extermination miniseries from 2018. I mentioned there that, uh, that we're moving, me and the wife. We are moving to a new house. And so uh, I had a lot of things planned that might be pushed off a little bit, but they're still coming here. Um, I, this was supposed to be a surprise. I had enlisted a lot of very talented folks to join me for a presentation of the X of Swords handbook. So we were each going to cover 
the X of Swords handbook is kind of an Ohatmu official handbook sort of thing, where there are profiles in there and a lot of uh, continuity and canon, and I figured rather than just have me dryly read and argue with continuity, that I'd have folks join me and lend their voices to the proceedings as well. So that episode was supposed to be coming out, I think, three episodes from now, but we're moving and time is more of a premium than ever, so that might be pushed back a bit. Uh, it's still coming. It's still definitely coming, but uh, and the release schedule shouldn't be affected. Uh, there'll still be shows coming out consistently, but that episode... I think it's currently earmarked for episode 112. It, it's very likely going to be pushed back. I apologize to all the folks who, uh, I guess, have the misfortune of being in my social circle <laughs> for um, kind of dropping the ball and really you know, backloading this month here. I've got the move, and also uh, on, the thir- on the 31st of January is the five-year anniversary of Chris's on Infinite Earths as a daily comics uh, discussion and review site and i'm not even sure i'll have time to celebrate that so we will we will hope for the best and uh, that episode will be coming out just a little bit later than originally planned but uh, i think that's all i've got i'd like to thank you all so so much for sharing your time with me today and until next time as always i'll talk to you again real soon see ya Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 135 of X-Labs, where, by popular request, we are continuing our look at the recently ended Juggernaut miniseries here. And, uh, you know, a funny thing happened to me today while I was writing today's script. I get to a little bit at the end of the synopsis where I talk about what we're going to be talking about next episode. And since there were two issues of Juggernaut that came out during our little uh, X of Tens uh, endeavor... I figured I'd cover them both in a row. So today, Juggernaut number two. Next episode, Juggernaut number three. 
And then I realized that I did not own Juggernaut number three. And, uh, well, you figure, what's a big deal? You know, you run out to the comic shop, you pick up Juggernaut number three. No big deal. Well, I, uh... I'm a little nervous to look at the sales figures for this Juggernaut uh, miniseries because uh, none of my local shops had it in stock. And in fact, a few of them told me that they didn't even order any copies for the wall. So the only way you were getting an issue of Juggernaut outside of the first issue, I guess, would be to put it on a pull list well in advance so the comic shop would order it. So uh, I don't know how many people are reading this. I don't know how well it did in the sales, but I have a sneaking suspicion it didn't do great. Uh, Long story, a little less long, I wound up putting 95 miles on my car today, driving all the way across the Valley of the Sun to to procure a copy of Juggernaut number three. So we will be covering Juggernaut number three next episode, but uh, boy, I wasn't expecting it to be such a... uh, such a difficult uh, little trial in order to track this sucker down, but it is in hand, and uh, we will be getting to it, of course. Now, today is Juggernaut number two, and uh, if you're familiar with the cover of this issue, you'll see that the Hulk is featured prominently on it, so just like last episode when we talked about the Fantastic Four, this gives me an opportunity to talk to you all about my life and times as a fan of the Hulk. And uh, my story might be a little bit... uh, Well, not unique in the sense that uh, it's anything special, but I think it might be unique as to just sort of being against what what folks usually say about the Incredible Hulk and how they discovered it and when they fell in love with it. I came into Hulk fandom after Peter David left. I didn't have anything wrong with Peter David. In fact, he's one of my favorite writers. But I, I just never thought the Hulk was that interesting a character or concept that it would be something that I would follow. Of course, I had a few smattering of, ep- of issues throughout my collection. It's just one of those things that kind of happens. If you see a, uh, a guest star on the cover, you might pick it up. If it ties into something that you might be interested in, you might pick it up. So I had a handful of the Peter David run. Very, very slight handful. Um, I wouldn't actually buy Hulk comics like on purpose until the relaunch, the... Uh, ill-fated John Byrne re- relaunch there. And I didn't pick up all the issues of that. I just picked up a couple. I, you know, there was a, uh, a very uh, notable uh, Wolverine and Hulk story right after Wolverine got his adamantium back. That one was a pretty big deal. I remember grabbing that because, you know, I'm an X-Men completionist. I, I did grab the first couple of issues of the Byrne run. Didn't really do much for me. And I wouldn't come back and I wouldn't buy the Hulk in earnest until uh, early in the Gemis Casada era where they put Bruce Jones on the book. It was Bruce Jones and John Romita Jr. And it was a very, very different take on what I expected out of The Incredible Hulk in that it wasn't like a uh, a punchy, punchy story. It wasn't a monster story. It was a, uh, it was a sort of a spy thriller. It was basically, you know, ripped right out of The Fugitive. You had Bruce Banner on the run. You had uh, these odd guests and who may or may not be someone that we should be familiar with. It was really, really well done, and I just totally fell for it. Um, of course, Peter David would return to the book after that and sort of retcon it all the way, which is kind of a bummer, but for the time that it was running, it, it did overstay its welcome, the Bruce Jones stuff. It did, the worm definitely did turn on it, and uh, 
I believe it was a story with the abomination where it, it had gone back into something that I wasn't terribly interested in. Uh, a lot of the more mysterious trappings were kind of not so much pushed to the side, but maybe put on the back burner to do a uh, like a monster of the week sort of a format there for a little bit toward the end. So I kind of lost interest, but I had found a deep appreciation for the character and decided that I was going to start working my way back here. Hulk was going to be one of those books that I would have every issue of uh, from the day I was born, and just, just like we talked about with the Fantastic Four last episode. And that was a goal that I'd set, and it's a, it's a goal that I met because... Um, as I would, I, w- I don't want to say as luck would have it because this was not a good thing. We had a chain of comic stores out here in the Phoenix area uh, called Atomic Comics. Now, if you uh, are familiar with like Wizard Magazine, you've probably seen their ads during the '90s here. They're a pretty big, pretty big operation. There were like three or four locations out here, and uh, well, they they started like slashing and burning their uh, back issue prices. So. Like, you'd walk in there and the guy would be like, yeah, everything in the back issue bin is 90% off. You know, it's like, ooh, well, that's great news for me in the in the immediate, but what does that mean for the store? And indeed, it meant the store was going out of business, and uh, they just didn't bother to tell anyone until they were, you know, the locks were already on the door. But during this huge sale that lasted like an entire summer, I had bought, uh, basically, I'd backfilled everything I needed from... Uh, from a lot of series, but the Hulk is one of those series. And uh, the Peter David run would become something of a comfort food for me. And I would read it every single year. Uh, every year I would read through the entire Peter David run uh, with a particular appreciation for the uh, Pantheon era, which, I mean, I look at the Pantheon era, and the first time I saw Pantheon was in a Marvel trading card. And they were they had a rookie card, and it looked like the most boring thing I'd ever imagined wanting to read. And uh, when I finally did read it, I was just blown away by it. I thought it was the, the best characterization of the Hulk. It's, it's the Hulk that everybody likes to call the Professor Hulk, which I, I hate that name. I feel like that is such a lousy name. I, 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 I think about that as uh, like the perfect amalgamation of Bruce Banner and the Hulk. You have Banner's mind, the Hulk's strength. He was a master strategist. He was leading the Pantheon for a bit there. I I just thought that was a really, really good take on him. And it's one that I remember hearing a lot of folks saying that uh, he was basically green-skinned Superman at this point. And uh, it's a little hard to argue, but I I enjoyed it for what it was. I I thought that the the cast around him at that point was really, really strong. You had Rick and Marlowe, who kept dying, and you had... uh, uh, Betty, who had kind of, kind of had a change in her personality. Um, we had found out about her ex-husband, and just really, really strong stuff. Um, definitely a, a favorite. And if you haven't read the uh, Peter David run here, and you have, you know, an extra several weeks, because <laughs> uh, it was a 12, 12 year run, I believe. So it's a lot of books, a lot of books. So if you have the opportunity, I, I definitely suggest you do so. But I, I'd gone back and I'd backfilled. And I kept up with the book, too. So Peter David did come back with a... Oh, boy, it was like Tempest Fugit, I believe, was the story that he came back with. And that took us into 
uh, like House of M tie-ins, and uh, then we were into Civil War. But when, with Civil War, uh, the Hulk was launched into into space, and that's when we had Planet Hulk. Uh, Greg Pack came on, did Planet Hulk, Planet Hulk, which I missed out on the first time because uh, this was during one of my uh, streaks of intense poverty. So I did not get that at the time. I had to find that again later. I had to go back and backfill that one. And I enjoyed Planet Hulk. I thought it ran a little long, but I enjoyed it. Uh, World War Hulk, I was completely back on board for. I thought that was a really, really good time. And even the uh, the Jeff Loeb stuff, which I know is divisive. Uh, it's kind of divisive, just like the Bruce Jones stuff is divisive. I know people who who really enjoyed the Jeff Loeb stuff, and I know people who have who actually have stopped collecting due to the Jeff Loeb stuff. When I think of Jeff Loeb, um, and I don't think we've had an opportunity to talk about Jeff Loeb on this program. I know I've probably talked about him before on other shows, but I see his work lately. You know, of course, he did, you know, like the long Halloween and stuff like that. But more present day stuff, you have things like the Red Hulk. You have stuff like uh, Avengers X Sanction. You have the Kid Nova series. I always look at the uh, the Jeff Loeb stuff nowadays as like the big budget popcorn movie sort of a feel. And he's always paired with like big bombastic artists, you know, and Ed McGuinness just muscles upon muscles but like cartoony and, and and appealing you know so i always think of that as uh as being the you know the popcorn movie sort of thing so taking the red hulk stuff as that i, I could appreciate it a lot more than than some might i suppose i i did definitely enjoy that what i didn't so much enjoy was the fact that like everybody in the cast became hulks you know, we had uh, Betty was the Red She-Hulk. We had that other Red she oh, We had the other She-Hulk, um, like the Savage She-Hulk. We had uh, Rick Jones was the A-Bomb. Uh, even Marlowe, I think, was Harpy. You know, I, I, it was just way too much stuff, and I, I thought that was a bit much. Uh, we had the Amadeus Cho stuff, which I did not care for either. Uh, we had bits, and I'm, I'm going all out of order here because... I conflate a lot of this time, uh, you know, the, the Marvel Nows, the all-new Marvel Nows, the all-new, all-different Marvel Nows, the other Marvel Nows, they all just seem to happen. I couldn't tell you what order they happened in. I know Marvel Now was the first one, I just couldn't tell you which Marvel Now was the first one. But uh, I remember feeling like Hulk was being, and this isn't the Hulk problem, this is a Marvel problem of the day, all of their heroes were being backburnered in favor of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, so you'd read something like Indestructible Hulk, and it was basically S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man guest-starring the Hulk. And it really, really turned me off to to everything there. I thought it was just such a disservice to the character and the readership, because, I mean, in case you don't know, S.H.I.E.L.D. can't can't really manage to hold on to its own ongoing, because they're boring. You know, they're not interesting, these characters. So Marvel's answer to that is, hey, let's just put them in every book then. It's the same thing they did with the Inhumans, which, I mean, the Inhumans can't, they can't have their own book because nobody cares about them. So instead, let's just shove them into every book, which <laughs> is wrongheaded at the best of times. But I was very turned off by that. But, uh, you know, then Secret Wars happened and I kind of just fell off altogether. I heard some good buzz about the current Hulk, the Immortal Hulk, but we, we've talked about this before. 
But the fellow who writes it is uh, not someone I'd like to support with my money So I have not read Immortal Hulk I've heard good things about it, I've heard bad things about it There are folks whose opinions I really value who said it was the worst thing in the world And then there's folks whose opinions I really value who said it's the best thing in the world And it's something I should be reading In a perfect world, I would be But uh, unfortunately, just like the Fantastic Four We talked about that last episode with, uh, with Dan Slott These books became can-quit-you books They were no longer can't-quit-you books So... Them's the breaks, I guess uh, I still have all the uh, all the Peter David stuff I could want to read I've got the Bruce Jones run I could wa- I could read if I want I've got the Burn stuff if I uh, am feeling silly <laughs> And want to wanna see jo- uh, John Byrne take the Hulk back to basics By having him get married Which is very, very back to basics for the Hulk But uh, I digress here uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the character um, It's a shame that I can't read him nowadays but uh, I have many, many fond memories And uh, about two and a half long boxes full of Hulk stuff So, big fan of the character So it's interesting to see him here in this issue That we're going to be getting into of Juggernaut So, I'll quit vamping And we will get right into it This is Juggernaut, Volume 3, Number 2 At a December 2020 cover date The story is How Green Is My Valley Written by Fabian Nicieza with art by Ron Garney Colors Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99, went on sale October 21, 2020. Now we open with, uh, well, not quite an info page, but a uh, very purple, in the prose sense, uh, comparison of the Hulk and the Juggernaut. Uh, the page, it, while being purple in prose, is green in text. Oh, and also, we get a note that this story takes place before Immortal Hulk number 30. Because uh, we wouldn't dare disrupt uh, the delicate genius Al Ewing's opus. And you know, it would be nice if the ex-office worried about where actual ex-stories fit. And maybe leave us a note every now and again. I'm thinking back to how we we got a very Kitty Pride-focused X-Men plus Fantastic Four miniseries while Kitty was dead. Um, and, and, you know, uh, how about where did, where did that Empire cash-in fit in to the Dawn of X story, right? Where did that happen? Eh, who cares, right? But we will pinpoint this issue of Juggernaut as fitting into Immortal Hulk's story. I guess we know what matters. Anyway, our story content begins with the Hulk and Juggernaut already duking it out. From here we flash back to the ending of last issue, which we learned took place about two weeks ago. You know, with a D-Cell telling Kane about the Hulk's rampage. The whole idea here is that Kane takes out the Hulk, right? Kane will beat up the Hulk, who is evidently back to being a threat, while D-Cell films it in order to prove that he's an actual good guy. Kane, of course. And not a bad good guy or a good bad guy. An actual good good guy. And also, you know, a celebrity. Because, uh, you know, they will film this for the internet. From here, we head into the fight, and Juggernaut leaps toward the Hulk and winds up smashing into a mountain. D-Cell is narrating this via her live stream on U-Rocks or whatever. She comments that, uh, you know, she could have used her deceleration powers to, sh- to slow Juggy's mountainside faceplant, but Kane Marco is, quote, mad tough and doesn't need her help. And we see a bit more of Hulk and Juggernaut slapping meat here. Kane slips back into flashback land and gives us our ex-relevant page for the issue. This is right after he'd returned from Limbo. He's in a hospital bed, 
and he's being visited by a telepathic projection of his stepbrother, Charles Francis Xavier. Now, Kane takes this as a sign that he's been invited to move to Krakoa so he can rejoin the X-Men. But Chuck tells him that that's not the case at all. You see, Kane's not a mutant, and so he's not welcome to even step foot on Krakoa. Xavier tells Kane that he believes in him before leaving, and, uh, wow, what a guy. Back to the fight. Now, you'll have to forgive some of my current-year Hulk ignorance here. Just like with Fantastic Four, I do not have all the context I might need to get the most out of this. Now, he, the Hulk, that is, keeps referring to all the bad stuff he's done as being the fault of, quote, the big guy. I'm just spitballing here, but is the current gimmick that Bruce Banner's brain is back in control? But, like, instead of being a timid genius, he's now just a complete dick? That's the feeling I'm getting here, though I could be completely misreading it. It'd be nice to get some context, right? I mean, maybe an editorial note? But we don't. Though, uh, make damn sure you read this before Immortal Hulk number 30. That's what's important. That's what's important. We don't need these juggernaut readers, these X-fans to know a damn thing. But, if you're a Hulk person, hey, read this before Immortal Hulk 30, damn it. Okay, now, D-Cell gets involved and uses her powers to slow the green guy down. Then, they use a bit of wonky physics to have Juggernaut launch toward the Hulk and level him with a KO shot. We jump back to flashback land, and it's a few months ago. Kane's in Budapest, being given a tour of the catacombs. There, he is shown the banished deity, Sidorak, and the new armor that he's currently wearing, so we might assume that this is where he got resuited up. Back to the present, and the Hulk is in a containment unit, with a big old grin on his face. Now, this is a bit weird. Okay, he's captured, right? But his captors know that they won't be able to hold him long. Basically, they'll be able to hold him just as long as the Hulk allows them to. And these are just ordinary folks here. Uh, This isn't like a long-term incarceration, and they know that they can't even kill the Hulk, so it's not like he's in any sort of danger. He's here, you see, so the people whose lives he affected can basically yell at him. They can yell in his direction. And so, over the course of a couple of pages, he gets to hear all about all the bad stuff he's done. And upon hearing this, he continues to smile. Finally, though, he's had enough, and he just smashes himself out of the cell here. Not in a violent way, really. I mean, it's just a, okay, I'm done listening, you know. Uh, Kane juggernauts up in order to resume their battle. Only there ain't gonna be one. The Hulk just wants to know if anyone present works for Roxxon. One dude raises his hand, says he works at a Roxxon gas station, but the Hulk is clearly looking for bigger fish than that. He then turns his attention to the Juggernaut and pretty much calls him out as a hypocrite. I mean, sure, the Hulk's done some bad stuff, but it was, quote, the big guy who did it, a pea-brained monster. The Juggernaut, however, has knowingly done all the bad stuff that he has done. Hulk then excuses himself and calmly walks away leaving the juggernaut with a harsh dose of reality and a whole lot of guilt, which he thinks on for a little bit. We wrap up with the juggernaut and D-Cell landing in Manhattan, where Kane is met with a summons to appear in court. You see, he's being sued for the bankruptcy of a construction company to the tune of 25 million bucks. And that's that. Next episode, thanks to uh, a very long drive, juggernaut number three. But let's talk about what we got here, um, which was a pretty good issue. I enjoyed it quite a bit. 
I really appreciated the characterization of the juggernaut here. Um, I can totally appreciate the juxtaposition between the, beha- the behaviors of the Hulk and Kane, and just how in control each of them actually are in their given situations. You know, the Hulk gets to he gets to assuage his guilt by blaming things on this big guy, right? Juggernaut was a villain for a long, long time. You know, smashing through stuff, beating people up, <laughs> just. He was a bad dude, and he was completely under control. I mean, there were times where he was under someone else's control, but uh, for the most part, he had free will. He just chose to be a bad guy. The Hulk really is more of a chaotic force of nature than a well- or ill-meaning individual, right? Uh, I, I think that that's a really cool comparison here. Though... This issue would have been helped a whole lot by giving us a little bit of context for the, the Hulk's current status quo. All we get here are some vague hints about a big guy, which, I mean, I'm assuming means that the, he's talking about the, the pea-brained Hulk, the monster Hulk, uh, rather than, I'm assuming Banner's in control now because he can speak eloquently <laughs> and reason. But uh, again, I don't know, which is a failing of the issue. This really should have been here, if not in the script, there should have been there should have been editorial notes. Like, oh, this is the Hulk story now. Hey, does this seem interesting to you? Now you can check out Immortal Hulk. This is the kind of stuff you'll get. Instead, they just take for granted that we're already reading the Immortal Hulk, which, again, tells you how much they value this miniseries. This miniseries feels like an afterthought, you know? Um, you gotta figure... This is being touted as an X-Men book. It was on our checklist, our Dawn of X checklist. At least the first issue was. So maybe, hey Marvel, assume that maybe just X-Men fans might be reading this. Maybe X-Men completionists are trying to give you their money and you're not giving them all the information they need to appreciate a story. I feel like that's a a missed opportunity. Um, And had the Hulk been portrayed a little bit better here, given a little bit more depth... Maybe you would have gained some readers to the uh, to the Immortal Hulk book. Frankly, I'm I mean even if I even if I didn't have my biases about that book, this would not have convinced me to check it out. No matter how much love I have for the character, no matter what curiosity I might have for uh, for current year Hulk, this wouldn't uh, this wouldn't have swayed me. This really wouldn't have swayed me. Um, another thing that wouldn't sway me, I'm still not a fan of the social media stuff with a D cell. Live streaming and all this stuff I do understand that I'm kind of shouting into the wind right now about this This is what it is You know, there's a young character That's that's what young people do That said, I'm not completely sold on D-Cell as a character Because she seems like another young character that Marvel's introducing Who, if the pattern of behavior is to be uh, repeated I figure she'll probably just spend most of her time on panel saying how cool she is or being told how cool she is by everyone around her. That seems to be the uh, the method of operations for young characters at Marvel ever since, like, what, 2010 or so? It's just young, sarcastic, snarky hero talking about how cool they are or being told just how cool they are. Maybe she'll surprise me. Maybe she won't. Um, I guess we'll, uh, we'll find out as we continue through this series. Uh, one thing I loved, the art. The art was very, very good. It's definitely a different style for Garney, but I think it really suits the story very, very well. And again, the story, the the juxtaposition between the Hulk and Juggernaut, 
very, very well done. I have no complaints there. I, I really did enjoy this. I just wish I had a little bit more context for it, and maybe we toned down a little bit of the social media stuff, but that's just Chris problems. That is not a problem with the story, the nuts and bolts. And if you are reading Immortal Hulk and you do read this one before, remember, before Immortal Hulk number 30, you have to read this one, you'll probably get a lot out of it. So at least in that regard, it's a success. But I am looking forward to more, which, I mean, what more can you ask for from a from a current year comic uh, than wanting to continue the story? So net positive on this one. Um, if you're not reading Juggernaut, well, you'll probably be able to find it online. But I don't know if you'll be able to find physical copies of it without... Uh, that putting a lot of miles on your vehicle. But those are my thoughts for Juggernaut number two. Let's head into the mailbag before we cut out of here. We're going to check in with Damien, who's talking about the penultimate chapter of X of Swords here, Excalibur number 15. Now, Damien says, You've mentioned before that the last three parts of X of Tens were released on the same day, and it's notable that my reaction to them on that day was very different to the one I'm having rereading along with you. This issue of Excalibur is much worse when it's divorced from the other two books. I don't quite understand how, but it feels like there are missing scenes. Yup. We need an explanation of the fact that the Krakoans won the contest of champions, and that Annihilation is breaking the terms of the contest by continuing to fight. If the Krakoans are not declared the winners, how does Storm know she can attack Annihilation without losing the contest? It makes no sense without the clear evidence that the Arakovoyans have cheated. Now, I'm so glad you said that because I had a completely different reaction to that. I, I agree with you 100%. It feels like we missed something. That is the that is the cliche. That's the meme with Excalibur now. Every time I open an issue of Excalibur, it's like, oh, am, right, am I reading the right book? Because it's just so disjointed. But I didn't take this as the Krakoans winning. I took, when I saw Annihilation, or Genesis put on the Annihilation helmet... I assumed that the fight was going to continue. I assumed that the fight wasn't over. I thought it was phase two of the of the big boss fight, you know. Uh, and I don't remember if was Genesis the champion of Araco or was it Annihilation. I don't remember if it was if if Saturnine had specified which one was going to be the champion here, since I mean they're the same person in a way, but they're also different people in a way. So I thought, I took it as, okay, this is the continuation of the fight. And uh, rather than Annihilation just doing one-on-one, just called all the Amenthi demons in, and that just let the X-Men do their thing. Very weird. <laughs> Very weird. But uh, I think your your take is probably more accurate than mine. <laughs> it's just a, uh, it should have been clearer, though. It definitely should have been clearer. Uh, Damien continues. There are some weird character moments. Why is Iska the Unbeaten so bloodthirsty? The character we saw in Marauders doesn't want to kill every Krakoan just for fun. And the Doug and Bay stuff feels really forced. I was astounded when Duggan and Nodo made them seem like a true couple in Cable, but that really doesn't come off here. In a way, it feels like a misjudged comedy bit. And you're right. And you're right. And it's funny, I was trying to think of who they reminded me of and it hit me after I'd stopped recording, unfortunately. Uh, they remind me of a twisted... This is Bay and Doug, of course. They, they remind me of this twisted, uh, like, Mr. Miracle and, and Big Barda. Where, like... And going back to, like, the, the, the comedy stuff. The J.M.D. Mateus, uh, late 80s, ongoing. Where 
Scott was kind of Scott Free was kind of a henpecked husband. Uh, Barda was like this domineering wife. That's how I saw them, and uh, that really, really rings true. That the, this is a this feels like comedy, and uh, I mean we've talked about Hickman's swings and misses when it comes to comedy. I guess uh, Teeny Howard has uh, the same uh, the same earned run average when it comes to swinging for a joke here. When you called it, Duggan and Noto really made them feel legit uh, back in uh, back in that issue of Cable. Where here, it feels very, very superficial and just doesn't really work. As for Iska being so bloodthirsty, another great point. It's almost as though the that maybe maybe Teeny didn't read the dinner party scene. I don't know because uh, that was a very different character. That was a very different character during the two-part uh, dinner party scene. Don't know. Damien continues. There was also lots of stuff I loved. I liked the revelation that Saturnine's entire plan was to create the Captain Britain Corps. It makes sense that having a representative in every plane of reality would be a position of power that she would seek. The idea that she needed a pure heart shattered in time of greatest need as part of her spell also explains why she couldn't perform the spell unless there was a crisis. Of course, my usual refrain is that I prefer to have this kind of information drip-fed to me over months rather than revealed in the penultimate episode of a massive crossover. But I think we've established that I've lost that battle. Well, you and me both, my friend. <laughs> I, uh, I have that same refrain, you know? Um, so many of these things... I mean, it just makes, it makes everything feel like it was decided on in the very last minute. And it's, it's one of those things that I think we're just supposed to accept... And uh, I, I've made I've made references to this before in, in other things that I've read. It's like it's like if you're trying to pull a gotcha, you need to you need to seed these mysteries. You need to seed these ideas. You're not getting one past the goalie if you keep it a secret, like a secret that isn't even possible to decode until the eleventh hour here, and be like, oh, by the way, this is why we did that. It's like, okay, genius? Uh, maybe no, no, <laughs> I don't know. Feels very, very weak. Uh, Damien continues. I love the use of Jubilee in this issue. Of course, she would team up with any group who were focused on protecting her son, and would get them to help the Krakoans whenever possible, or wherever possible. I don't know why, but I love when I see previous sidekicks develop into great leaders. See also Kitty. Maybe with no Betsy, we can see Jubilee step up to be the leader of Excalibur. That's a possibility. And while I do really, really love Jubilee... It just felt like uh, another layer on the Dagwood sandwich that, that this uh, crossover had become. It's just like, oh god, more characters? It's, it's like, aren't we almost done? There's only like 30 pages left, and we're dropping all these new characters in here. It was just... It felt like it... Uh, it kind of screamed to me as though... I mean, this was an issue of Excalibur. Uh, X of Tens was basically a an Excalibur story, which was blown up to usurp the entire line. It stunk to me of Teeny Howard just getting her stuff in. You know, it's like, okay, these are my characters that I need to steward. So they're getting in there. When I feel like maybe the other writers played ball a little bit better. You know, you didn't see Jerry Duggan shoehorning Bishop into an issue of Marauders. You didn't see him putting Pyro or Iceman in there. He knew what the game was. He knew the the hand that he was dealt. And it's like, okay, well, I have Storm. What can I do with Storm? You know, and, and Wolverine hangs out with the team too, so what can I do with Wolverine? Uh, ben Percy wasn't jamming Domino and Colossus into the book, right? Um, 
X Factor. Uh, Leah Leah Williams only had Polaris in the book. We weren't seeing Dakin Dakin or Aurora or North Star. But here in Excalibur, it's like, oh, I got to make sure all my characters are in here. It just really didn't sit well with me, especially when I don't think it added all that much. Um, everything was kind of a gimmick. It's like, okay, well, we need the Dragon Shogo so he can breathe the reality fire and um, and just remove everybody from the playing field that we don't need anymore. It's it rep- <laughs> This is a really obscure reference here. But if anybody out there has played the old Nintendo game, uh, Princess Tomato and the Salad Kingdom... It's an adventure game, like a point-and-click sort of a thing here, where if you've played point-and-click games, you know if you see an item, you pick it up, just in case you're going to need it, right? So you see a screwdriver, you pick it up. You see a diamond, you pick it up. You see a carrot, you pick it up. No matter what you see, you pick it up. Well, in between the uh, chapters of that game, you have this sidekick, and he accidentally loses everything you will never need again. So he's like, oops, I lost, I lost everything. Because you're not going to need it in the next chapter Shogo's Dragonfire felt like that It's like, okay, well we don't need all of these characters So blow the fire and just leave us with what we need Didn't really work for me Didn't really work for me Um, Damien continues I also like the Annihilation and Apocalypse elements of the story Annihilation is terrifying Mahmoud Azra produced truly menacing pages When she was declaring her intention to conquer everywhere Teeny Howard really brought her A-game to that dialogue it was poetic and evil, just perfect. They also sold me on Apocalypse's feelings for Genesis. He believed like, he behaved like someone who has found and then lost their true love. That'll give you. That'll give you. the. Uh, despite the, the balloons being a little difficult to read because they were white on black and uh, letters were kind of thin, the dialogue was especially strong there. And I really can't believe how sympathetic a character they turned Apocalypse into, which... I mean, that's a good thing and a bad thing, since he was sort of a focal point of this series and and story, but I wonder how, if or when, he he comes back, and is he going to ever be a viable villain again? You know, I'm sure, I mean, he's Apocalypse, like, he can't be a hero or or a good guy forever, right? But we'll find out. Damien continues. On the whole, I still want I still wind up po- generally positive on this issue, but looking at it in isolation really does damage it compared to reading it swiftly, desperate to click on the next part. And that's true, and, and that's something that I've talked about several times about being part of the uh, X-lapsed uh, process problem, right? The method of X-lapsed is uh, kind of problematic and um, challenging because... Like you, like you said it here, reading it swiftly, I think that's what we're supposed to do. And meanwhile, I'm spending, you know, upwards of five hours with each issue, which, you know, when, if you think seems show when you're reading it quickly, uh, when you actually spend a greater portion of your free time with a, with a single book, those seems really, really show. You can almost see through them sometimes. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem with the method that I've approached this with, but... Um, I mean, every comic, in theory, should be able to stand on its own. And this one, I would imagine, would have been really, really good reading it just quick, quick, quick. But when you stop and look at it as its own thing here, and you don't... You know, it wasn't just a minute after you read X-Men number 15, and it wasn't just a minute before you read Destruction. 
it's just sort of its own thing, and it's kind of all over the place. Now, Damien wraps up with anyway until Excalibur crosses over with the Punisher, and Saturnine casts a love spell with a different kind of jigsaw. Make my next lapsed. Well, you know, if the Punisher wants Saturnine, he can have her. <laughs> Let's send the Punisher to Otherworld and maybe keep our guys back on, the, on Krakoa, or maybe send him, send him anywhere. <laughs> Put him back in New York. Put him in San Francisco again. Put him in uh, Angel's Airy in New Mexico. I don't care. Just uh, not Otherworld. Please, not Otherworld. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that penultimate chapter. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on uh, Destruction uh, very, very soon. We've also got a message from Evan talking about Uncanny X-Men Annual number 1 from 2019. This was uh, episode 8 of X-Lapstination. Now, Evan says, Enjoyed listening to the episode on Uncanny Annual number 1 while waiting for the rest of X of Tens to drop on Marvel Unlimited. I thought it was a good way to bring Cyclops back and get him back into a more heroic light. Your solution, pluck him away before the Terrigan cloud rolls through, was much simpler. But even in the age of decompression, that wouldn't have filled an issue. And maybe keeping Cyclops alive would have made for a worse outcome. Maybe he had to be taken off the board for longer. And maybe he needed that time to get his mind right thanks to Kid Cyclops' memories returning. Now, the what Evan's talking about there is... Cable had Kid Cable had set it up so Cyclops would save a guy's life as when he was younger, and then that guy would be able to save Cyclops's life by crafting a Phoenix box, uh, Phoenix case, cage, Phoenix cage, I think they called it, which would be implanted in Scott's dead body, so that when during Phoenix Resurrection he's brought back briefly, the Phoenix's power would like reach jumpstart his heart. So he would be able to come back here And all that is wonderfully convoluted And very, very comic booky. And I appreciate it for what it was I was just thinking, like my, my idea was And it wasn't even an idea so much As just an observation that If we're just playing with the time stream anyway Why not just pluck him out, you know um, I wasn't even like a serious suggestion It was just a devil's advocate sort of thing It's like, why did we go through all this trouble when he could have just done it easily And I think Evan's right on the money here I think Cyclops needed to be gone for a bit Because uh, everyone else had to Evolve the way they were going to evolve Without without his uh, influence And also um, All the original five time-displaced kids They got to keep their memories uh, When the time loop closed All those memories came flooding back Therefore, you know, grown-up Cyclops Would now have young Cyclops' memories From his time as a time-displaced Mutant And that's something we'll be talking about much more During a uh, brief look at Champions In the not-so-distant future Because Kid Cyclops was a member of the Champions team And, uh, well, he's going to be teaming up with them Briefly again as an adult So that'll be interesting to talk about Now, Evan continues He was subject to the same temporary mind wipe As the other five at the end of Extermination So those memories wouldn't have been accessible to him Until after he came back from this for the second time Phoenix Resurrection was pre-extermination. I don't. Th- I didn't think of this while reading it, but maybe Cable's test was to see if the memories came back. Maybe the reason Cyclops was able to chill out was because he had the memories of his younger self, seeing how bat crap crazy he had become. Would ultra militant Cyclops have put the life of a non-mutant over the X-Men? <laughs> that is another great point here, and uh, I definitely think that could have been told better in the book. What Evan's referring to, if you haven't listened to that episode Or if you haven't read Uncanny Annual Number 1 uh, Like the fifth Uncanny Annual Number 1 uh, 
uh, Cable orchestrates even more. He orchestrates some stuff in the present day where Cyclops has to make a choice between... Well, he's going to make a choice on how he re-debuts. So he's back to life. The fellow who helped bring him back to life, his family's in danger. And also, the X-Men are in danger because they're fighting off X-Men and they're about to be swept off into the Age of X-Men over in the main Uncanny X-Men series. So Cyclops is presented with two options here. Does he help this non-mutant Paul Duick who helped him, who brought him back to life, or does he help the X-Men? And I think Evan might be right on the money here because before he came back, he was all, he was all about uh, being a mutant revolutionary. So he definitely would have helped the X-Men without a second thought. Paul Duick would have just been, you know, cannon fodder. He, his whole family would have just been dead. Where maybe this was a way to see if the memories did in fact come back. Because young Scott was pretty aghast at Elder Scott and was basically terrified of what he saw himself becoming. So I think... I think I underplayed the young Scott's influence on older Scott, and uh, I think Evan's got this got this one right on the money here. I just wish it was better presented in the book here, uh, where, I mean, right now we're filling all this stuff in in our heads, and I, I don't think we should have had to do that. Now, uh, Evan continues, Come to think of it, would most of the population of Krakoa do that now? They aren't Brotherhood of Evil Mutants level, but there is an air of superiority around them. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? We've talked a little bit about um, the mutant or Krakoan ethnocentrism of late, right? Where it's, you know, for the people and everyone else can go pound salt. So that is quite a, an interesting thing here where just not, not too long ago, this is 2019. So probably, boy, six, seven months before Hoxbox. Where we're having Cyclops choose a non-mutant over the mutant And now, I mean, everybody in Krakoa is rah-rah mutant Everyone else can, you know, suck eggs You know, it's, it's interesting uh, Evan wraps up with Or maybe Cable just wanted to make sure the person who came back was really his dad And since Storm wasn't yet asking naked people personal questions Before leading big culty chants He had to improvise That's always a possibility <laughs> When you don't have Storm to interview uh, naked people, you, <laughs> you need to you need to work with what you got. So, uh, and Kid Cable's still young yet, so he was just doing everything he could there. But uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for uh, for giving me your thoughts on Uncanny Annual Number One and for listening to the entire X Lapsed Nation uh, series there. Uh, that series is available on xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearth.com in its entirety. Also, you know, everywhere you find. Uh, my stuff, uh, Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, yada, 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 all those places. Um, so if you want to hear x the Nation, it's there, all eight episodes. But that is where we will put a pin in the mailbag for today. If anybody would like to write in and be a part of the mailbag, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. Also, the aforementioned xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can chat up our little group on Facebook. It's 90s X-Men, where I just posed a question about other X-Men appearances in the wider Marvel Universe, asking for some help in pointing me in the direction to cover 
uh, you know, books like this, books like Fantastic 426, books like The Champions and Runaways that we'll be getting to, books like Gwenpool, all that sort of stuff here that uh, anything you feel like is uh, worthy of devoting an episode to, just let me know and we will definitely do that. You can listen to all the Chris and Reggie audio over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Uh, Juggernaut 2 out of the way. Juggernaut 3 next episode. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 136 of X-Labs, the uh, late-night edition here. And uh, if I sound any more echoey than uh, usual, it's because I'm currently recording in an empty room. (laughs) Today is the first recording from the new abode, the new uh, palatial Chris state. And, uh, well, I'm at a folding table with a folding chair, got my microphone and my laptop, and... uh, that's about all there is in this room, so if I'm echoey, I apologize, and uh, this will hopefully be a short-lived um, echoey disaster. But uh, let's get into today's book here. Uh, as we discussed last episode, it took me many, many miles to find the issue we're going to discuss today, and that is Juggernaut, Volume 3, Number 3. Now, the set of January 2021 cover date, stories called Stuck in the Past, written by Fabian Nicieza with art by Ron Garney. Colors Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson White, Bisa Sabolsky. Cover price $3.99, went on sale November 18th of 2020, so right toward the tail end of our X of Tens uh, jaunt, I believe this one came out. I think X of Tens ended just a week after this came out. Alrighty, let's get into it. We open with another purpley info page, though this one is actually orange in font. And our comics content begins with our titular hero duking it out with Spider-Man. Now, this isn't actually happening in real time. This is actually a callback 
to the two-part Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut story that appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issues 229 and 230. Now, those are from way back in the long ago, June and July 1982, respectively, in which the only way Spidey was able to stop the Juggernaut was to sink him in a pool of just-poured concrete at at a construction site. And before we go on, that is a, a great little story. And even though I've just spoiled the entire thing for you, I would still recommend going to uh, give it a look if you're so inclined. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Now, why is this relevant? Well, if you recall, last issue ended with the Juggernaut getting sued by a construction company. Well, this was that construction company. I figure it's weird that they'd wait so long to serve papers, but what are you going to do? Maybe they're just taking advantage of the fact that Juggernaut's uh, more of a sort of kind of good guy at the moment, right? Anyway, we're currently in court, and the Spidey v. Juggernaut image is simply a piece of evidence. Uh, A photo snapped by one Peter Parker, of course. Now, the lawyer's testimony gets a little bit wonky and a little bit contradictory of the established ASM two-parter, uh... You see, he's claiming that the fight caused the cement to be poured, or released, when the original story actually had the cement already poured and Juggernaut was simply lured into it and then he sunk, right? Now, even though this is contradictory, I can still, I guess, appreciate it for what it is. Uh, Now, let's jump back to last issue for a minute. If you recall, uh, the Hulk called Kane out for being a hypocrite when it came to taking the blame for his actions and behavior. And the comparison there was the Hulk was less responsible for what he did because, I mean, he was a pea-brained force of nature, right? Whereas, conversely, Kane Marco was knowingly causing all sorts of havoc and just being an all-around jerk. Now, here, at the court, we've got Kane being confronted with literal evidence of his past misdeeds. And to make that point even finer... The lawyer makes sure to say that Kane Marco was not being mind-controlled and his actions and choices were his own at the time of the uh, event. Now, Kane's lawyer, Bernie Rosenthal, attempts to have the whole thing tossed out, claiming that the entire hullabaloo was Spider-Man's fault. And, well, you know, there was uh, plenty of blame to go around there. Uh, It is worth noting, I guess, that D-Cell is in the peanut gallery live-streaming and narrating the entire trial because, of course, she is. Suddenly, there's an earthquake in New York City? Huh. Well, we'll come back to that in a bit, because first, flashback land. We got Kane Marco in North Korea. This is a few months ago, where he's being sherpered around a snowy mountain path. He and his guide finally arrive at their destination, which is the Forge of Sidorak. So I guess he didn't get the new armor in Budapest then. That was just a, uh, I don't know, a sculpture of some sort. Anyway, our man heads inside where he meets with a blacksmith. And this smith is not happy to see Cain. You see, the smith believes he ought to be the true host of Sidorak. And so he begins swiping in Cain's direction with his sledgehammer, just like you do. Back to the present, and the courthouse is suddenly flooded with sand. Which, seeing as though we're sort of kind of dealing with the fallout of a Spider-Man story from like 40 years ago, I assumed that the big reveal here would be that Juggernaut would have to fight the Sandman. That's not the direction we're headed, however. Uh, It's actually going to be the Juggernaut versus Quicksand. Who? Yeah, who indeed. Now, Quicksand is here 
not so much to fight Juggernaut, but to abduct D-Cell. And so we get several pages of fighting, while D-Cell seems more interested in continuing her livestream. It's worth noting that Quicksand refers to D-Cell as the mutant child, which our gal ain't really keen to hearing. Remember, she's totally not a mutant. She totally wouldn't lie to us, right? Now, she, uh, D-Cell, is flanked by a pair of damage control agents who confirm that, uh, yeah, D-Cell is a mutant. But they don't really press the issue because they're busy scanning the baddie. They're eventually able to deduce that Quicksand is being mind-controlled, and they shout to Kane that uh, the best way to defeat her would be to remove her head. Which, I mean, wouldn't that defeat her in any case? Mind-controlled or not, you take something's head off, it's probably going to be worse for the wear, right? Oh well. Anyway, Juggernaut then tosses a large chunk of debris right at Quicksand's neck, which, well, yeah, decapitates her. D-Cell is then called in to use her totally not-mutant powers to slow down the sand particles in Quicksand's dome in order to keep it from reattaching to its body. From here, back to flashback land, and Kane and the Smith fight. Well, actually, the Smith fights. Kane just evades the hammer shots. Now, one of those hammer shots hits a chain which releases the crimson bands of Sidorak all over our hero. We see him bathed in the stuff, and finally, back to being the or a unstoppable juggernaut. We hop back to the present where Kane and his lawyer settle up with the construction company. By uh, replacing the lost product in the cement from 40 years ago by handing over a whole bunch of sand from Quicksand's body? The hell? All right. Whatever the case, it seems to have done the trick. Uh, We have to assume that the plucky construction company who is after $25 million is suddenly cool with being handed a few ton of sand. Because sand is uh, so much harder to come by than cash. Alright, I'm, j- I'm going to stop thinking about this too hard because it, it really doesn't make any sense here. Um, now we wrap up the issue with the revelation that Quicksand was, in fact, being mind-controlled and being mind-controlled by Arnim Zola, the Nazi scientist who was apparently experimenting on superhuman prisoners. And that's where we leave it. Uh, next episode, we will be back on the beaten path. We're going to kick off the Reign of X with Hellions number 7. Really looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. But let's talk about the Juggernaut first. Let's talk about Juggernaut number 3, which, you know, it's it's another fun issue. It flew by, but didn't really feel all that decompressed. It was just a, a really good read, a satisfying read. Um, really enjoyed my time with it. Uh, now, one of the things I said when we started looking at this Juggernaut mini was uh, that the story isn't trying to be anything that it's not. And I still believe that. Uh, This is a comic book that presents itself as a comic book. Go figure, right? This isn't self-important. It's not up its own ass with high-concept nonsense. This is a straightforward superhero comic book. And boy, is that refreshing to see. Um, Now that having been said, while this is a really fun issue, it really doesn't give us a whole heck of a lot to talk about, does it? Um, I mean, we could talk about... Uh, We're not going to concern ourselves with actual legalities, right? Because A, I'm sorely unqualified to do so, and B, to do so would probably hurt our enjoyment of the story. I mean, statutes of limitations have got to be a thing, right? Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 229-230 was nearly 40 years ago real-time, and while under Marvel's sliding timescale, that may have been 
anywhere from six months ago to 600 years ago. So it's kind of hard for us to reconcile that in our heads, so we will just, you know, allow it. We could talk about the settlement, but that makes no sense, right? Um, I feel like uh, we were painted into a corner with the lawsuit and the trial, so we got to figure out a way out of this, right? So we'll take any vine we can grab before we sink into uh, legal and uh, literal quicksand. <laughs> um, and, you know, speaking of quicksand, um, here's a story I never thought I'd tell. I never thought I'd have to tell it. Uh, it's a weird um, Chris is on Infinite Earth story. Uh, not too long ago, probably, boy, within the past three months or so, I noticed a spike in my readership over Chris's on Infinite Earths, and it was all directed to a particular issue with a flash from somewhere in the Bronze Age, um, mid-70s, I think. An old post. An old post. It's probably been there for three or four years. Uh, never really got any kind of uh, traffic, you know, just nothing out of the ordinary. You know, got the standard amount of hits as, uh, as a blog post of mine would usually get. Suddenly, overnight, I was getting thousands of hits on this one post, which if you if you ever got into blogging or podcasting, any kind of content creation for the internet, and you see a huge spike in your audience, your first thought might be like, oh, okay, a bot, you know, a bot found me, and uh, there's... You know, seven billion computers just all like fishing the site or whatever. But and then that that has happened before, of course. I mean, that's just something that does happen. Here, though, there was a referral link, and uh, here here's a here's a pro tip. Um, if you do maintain a blog or a uh, website or a podcast, any anything that you might be able to f- find out where your hits come from. Don't click on the link, <laughs> the referring link here. No matter how benign or family-friendly it looks, uh, you just never know what you're going to find here. Because um, now this issue of The Flash that was uh, so popular all of a sudden featured The Flash, Barry Allen, um, sinking in quicksand. And uh, that was why people were reading it, because the referral site was a fetish site for quicksand. I didn't realize that was a thing. But in fact, it was, or is. And, um, and that's, not the, that's not the only uh, group that found my website, but maybe we'll save that discussion for another day. But uh, the whole time we're talking about quicksand in this juggernaut issue... All I'm thinking about is Barry Allen sinking in the uh, in the quicksand, and I'm wondering if uh, this episode might get a spike in listenership as a result of uh, mentioning quicksand in the uh, in the episode description, which I guess I'm going to have to now just to test this theory out. But uh, yeah, that was a thing. Um, overall, I mean, not a whole heck of, heck of a lot more to say. We did find out how Kane got the new armor. Which was really just a, uh, a means to an end, right? It wasn't, it wasn't overly interesting, but it was something that had to happen, and it happened in, in fine enough a way. I don't know if we'll be getting more flashbacks uh, in the last two issues of this miniseries. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that happens, and we'll discuss it when it does, or if it does. But uh, overall, had a great time with this. 
It was a lot of fun. Um, Ron Garney still killing it here in the art. Uh, it's a like I said uh, both times we talked about this before. Uh, it's a different style for Garney, but it really really works and it suits the tone of the story. And Nisi Asa very very seldom disappoints. So definitely a fun book, a book I would recommend checking out if you are uh, if you're enjoying this coverage, which I hope that you are. But uh, that will do it. For our discussion of uh, Juggernaut number three and uh, quicksand fetishes, I guess uh, let's hop into the mailbag. We've got a few uh, a few pieces of mail to get to. We're going to kick it off with Evan, who's talking about X Men number fifteen here. The not the penultimate issue of uh, Exitens, the one before that, the pen penultimate. Um, now. Evan says, X-Men number 15, hey, look at the X-Men being the X-Men, fighting against not a world that hates and fears them, but a world that finds them politically inconvenient. The Quiet Council arguments make sense here, even if I'm fully behind Cyclops. Now, we've talked about this. X-Men number 15 was where the uh, the shoe dropped, the, uh, the, the, the sandal dropped. It wasn't a huge drop like we've seen before, but uh, something did drop. Uh, we found out that the X-Men were disbanded. Uh, of course, it would have been nicer to know that before this, but uh, eh, what are you going to do? Better late than never. And Evan is completely right here. The, uh, the Quiet Council arguments about uh, retiring the X-Men acting like a, like a nation, you know, uh, trying to make X-Men less the Kleenex to the tissue, right? Where people see mutant and they automatically say X-Men, they want to change that to... When you see mutant, you think Krakoan, because that is their nation. So it does totally make sense. And I'm with Evan as well with being completely behind Cyclops here, because, I mean, I don't know if any of us would be reading this if it was about a mutant government from the get-go, right? I mean, that just doesn't sound like a very fun thing to read about. This is a superhero book at the end of the day. So uh, if the X-Men are going to be the X-Men again, that is perfectly fine by me. Evan continues, I still don't feel much about Apocalypse and his wife. Now, with that, I I agree and I kind of disagree in that, you know, with Apocalypse, I do care about Apocalypse. Um, I'm starting to have sympathy for Apocalypse, which is something that, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't have for a character like that. But they've done a good job of making me actually feel bad for Apocalypse. I still don't care about Genesis. Uh, Genesis feels more like a plot device than a character. And, I mean, that's a lot of our new characters from X of Tens here. They are just there to to fill a role and to be just a round enough peg to fit through the round hole, you know? Uh, I feel like Genesis is something along those lines here. But Apocalypse himself, uh, it's hard not to feel bad for him. Everything that's gone down is, uh, you know, got to feel like a kick to the crotch, right? Just uh, your family, your kids going against you. It's bad times for Apocalypse. And uh, his wife just constantly berating him for being weak when that's kind of been his gimmick since we were introduced to him back in the long ago here, just calling people out for not being fit when we find out that... uh, You know, it's like an abusive person growing up in an abusive household, right? Yeah, you get abused, so you turn around and abuse others. And uh, Apocalypse being told that he's weak over and over again makes him tell everyone else they're weak and uh, try to test them. So I'm I'm a fan of the Apocalypse beats here. I'm kind of sorry to see him go, Uh, but Genesis, eh, can take or leave. Evan continues. 
I got the feeling the whole not using the name X-Men thing was planned, because it would explain why Kitty called her team the Marauders. Sure, it was heat of the moment, but why not just fall back on the X-Men? And it somewhat eases the, or explains the tension I felt with a lot of these characters not, like, not acting like the X-Men I've known. They aren't the X-Men. Though not in the conspiratorial, they're all clones way that I thought, but I'm still holding on to that one as well. Now, it's funny that you call back to the Marauders here, because I took Kitty pulling the name Marauders out because she couldn't use the X-Men, because the X-Men were already in use. That's, that's how I figured it. Like, I figured that they knew that the X-Men already had, uh, was, was already called. And so she was thinking about, what, what else can I call it? What else can I call it? There's already an X-Men, there's already an X-Force. Uh, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? And uh, Marauders is just something that popped in her head here. But you might be right. You might be right on the money there that uh, the X-Men name was just off the table. And we just weren't privy to that conversation. So that, that is a very good possibility. Evan continues... But why it was delivered this way, it felt like a big reveal that everyone knew but the reader, and I'm not so sure about that. It was an odd way to get there, but I feel like this offers a chance to define what the X-Men are in this new mutant society and why they're still needed. And yes, totally, totally, I'm with you there. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this uh, all shakes out here. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, Cyclops and Jean are going to be at the forefront of this team, and uh, I, I'm really interested to see how they how they go about it, and uh, what kind of what kind of clashes they might have with the Quiet Council. What kind of interests might uh, kind of maybe different confrontations we're going to see. It's I think it could be very interesting. The delivery. This is the worst way to deliver this big reveal, you know, uh, doing it in an info page or at least confirming it in an info page. We get the impression through the, the dialogue between Cyclops and the Council that the X-Men are, you know, not a thing anymore because Cyclops has to remind them that, hey, you know what, we are still the X-Men. So we have the idea that it's off the table, but we don't get the confirmation until the info page. And uh, that, I've had problems with that since the, since day one here. Um, I feel like, and, and I still hold hold firm to the possibility or the probability that a lot of the people reading this Either skim or skip many, many info pages, especially when it's a two-page spread of info pages. I think even the most diligent of X-Men readers go into skim mode at that point. And uh, I probably would, too, if I wasn't, you know, covering these books. And there, there are still some that I do, because some of them are very, very boring. But uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see where this goes. I do wish it was delivered a little bit better, maybe a little earlier, or a lot earlier, just so we know... Just so we know why the characters were acting the way they were. And I mean, we still have a lot of theories about why they act the way they do, but at least this would have been one question we could have had answered there. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, the on the pen penultimate issue of Exitens, which leads me to believe that uh, Marvel Unlimited has updated to the point where Exitens ended, because... X-Men, Excalibur, and Destruction all hit the same day, so hopefully they all hit Marvel Unlimited at the same time, and uh, everyone who had to wait will hopefully have those in their hands right now. So thank you so much, Evan. I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on the rest of the uh, massive crossover event. We got one more missive, and it's from our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG. It's about our Fantastic Four number 26 episode. He says, great episodes, Chris. I found it a little easier to catch up on the weekends. I wanted to chime in because of Franklin Richards not being a mutant anymore. 
Was he really one? It was barely covered in FF. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, the Franklin Richards thing, it always feels like... uh, it always felt like they they wanted to kind of keep keep their feet in both camps with Franklin. Um, I'm sure the revelation that he was a mutant happened when the X Men were leading the sales charts, right? And you need to have a you need to have a finger in that pie, right? It's it's a way to connect a character in a book that isn't as popular with a group of books that are extremely popular. And I think it was like a safety thing. You know, they liked having it as a fallback. If something something they could have discussed or could have covered if they wanted to, it's just that they never really did anything about it. They, you know, they knew he was a mutant for the time that he was or that we assumed that he was, but uh, you never really did anything with it. He hung out with Generation X for a little bit when uh, during Heroes Reborn, but uh, I'm trying to think of any other time where... Outside of X-Men Fantastic Four and the other X-Men Fantastic Four That that one might have been called Fantastic Four and the X-Men Or Fantastic Four versus the X-Men One of those, whichever one But uh, those are the only times we really focused on Franklin being a mutant And if there's anyone out there reading Fantastic Four uh, regularly Please let me know if this has come up again In, uh, in any of the uh, subsequent issues here If he's dealing with it If... Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe he's, uh, his father's running tests on him to find some things out. I mean, the whole reveal here, we talked about how kind of just like sweeping it under the rug it was and how sort of kind of lazy it was. Um, it just felt like uh, it, him being a mutant was just something they didn't want to deal with anymore. So they just wrote it out. <laughs> they didn't try to explain anything away. It was just like, yeah, just uh, you, you never were. Um and I mean, I still have questions about that because he was able to pass through the gates. Um, if you, even if he manifested his own X gene, which is what Professor X was kind of alluding to, doesn't that make him a mutant? If he has the X gene, he's a mutant, right? Even if he gave it to himself, he's still he still got the uh, the, the the necessary uh, gen- genetics to be considered a mutant. He passed through the gateways. Cerebro wasn't able to tell for his entire life until right now that he wasn't a mutant. I mean, that just seems so weird. So weird, and it feels like we only got half of an answer there. So, like I said, if anybody's still reading the Fantastic Four and we do get the other half of that answer, please let me know, and we will uh, we'll cover that on the show here. But thank you so much for checking in there. GLHG, it really, really means a lot to me. Um, and if anybody else would like to get a hold of me, uh, that would mean a lot to me as well. You could uh, find me on the Twitter machine at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about all sorts of stuff on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can hear everything from the Chris and Reggie radio channel network thing at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for today, and that'll do it for our little little jaunt into the weeds post-X of Tens here. We, we talked about Gwenpool, we talked about the Fantastic Four, a couple issues of Juggernaut, and next time we kick off the Reign of X officially with Hellions. Really looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. 
I would like to thank you all so, so much for spending your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 141 of X Lapsed, where it might be a shorter episode today, at least uh, comics content-wise. Uh, we got us one of those good news, bad news situations here uh, with this issue of Juggernaut. Uh, the good news is I enjoyed it. Uh, the bad news is there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say about it. So uh, let's hop right into it here. This is Juggernaut, volume three, number four. Out of February 2021, cover date, this is the penultimate issue of Juggernaut. The story's called Scalpel to the Soul, written by Fabian Nicieza, with art by Ron Gawney. Colors Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale December 9th of 2020. Now we open, and our purple prose opener is, uh, well, it's actually purple this time. And uh, to be fair, it's quite a less purple prosy than the first few. We open comic content with Juggernaut being dropped from a damage control chopper into Arnim Zola's base, which, if uh, we recall from last issue, is a prison where he's experimenting on superpowered inmates, or something like that. Now, D-Cell, she's still narrating or live-streaming this entire thing, and she claims that this location is an old Factor 3 base. Now, Factor 3 were a motley assortment of X-Men villains put together in the late 60s. I don't know that we've seen them since. I don't know if we've ever seen them again. I could be mistaken. Now, at this point, it's I gotta say, uh, D-Cell's narration is uh, getting just as much on Kane's nerve as it is mine. <laughs> and so uh, he asks her to kindly cut the commentary. Our hero, once inside, is then attacked by, as the cover might have suggested, Primus. And I did not know who this character was. Um, he's apparently an old Captain America villain from before I was even born. So that probably explains why. <laughs> I had no idea who he was. 
Anyway, he's a uh, he's the stringy, goopy thing from the cover, and uh, he's described as being a shape-shifting android or something like that. Now, he and Kane, they wrestle for a bit. Uh, Primus eventually envelops Kane inside his nastiness, uh, kind of like we saw with uh, Gwenpool and Deadpool uh, getting stuck inside Reed Richards back in uh, one of the issues of Gwenpool Strikes Back. Now, Artem Zola makes his appearance here, and uh, we can see that he looks quite a bit different here. He looks more like a digital being rather than having like a fleshy face in his belly. If you know Arnim Zola, he's got like a face in his belly. Here it's like a screen, like a monitor with like kind of like matrixy lines, like from the, the Matrix film, you know, those weird binary stuff. It looks kind of like that, but it makes the form of a face with lines going through it. Now, Juggernaut asks why Zola came after D Cell, and our Nazi mad scientist is quick to respond. You see, D-Cell is a mutant, despite whatever she might say. And since Krakoa is now its own isolated thing, mutants are much harder to come by in the rest of the world, so she is valuable. From here, we hop into Flashback Land, and Kane is is at an O-N-E storage facility. Now, O-N-E are the Office of National Emergency, and I want to say we first saw them around M-Day, after the horrendous House of M event. I think it was like a Sentinel Squad O-N-E or something like that back then. Anywho, we find out that O-N-E have in their possession some shards of Sidorak. A much welcome and somewhat surprising editor's note refers us to Uncanny X-Men number 21 for all the deets. And uh, that is the most recent Uncanny X-Men number 21, not like the three or four that came before that for those of us keeping score. And so... Juggernaut fights his way through, gets the gem bits, and appears to finally be fully repowered. Now, last issue, we saw that he got that weird harness or whatever it was from that North Korean Sidorak temple. And now, the gem. Now, back to the present. Damage Control has lost contact with the Juggernaut. And so, D-Cell decides to go all-action hero and leap from the chopper to help. She manages to slow her fall with her deceleration powers, which, yeah, that's pretty handy. It's worth noting that she monologues the entire way down, and uh, with every voice balloon, I I think I like her just a little bit less. She lands, enters the base, which is more or less exactly what Arnim Zola hoped would happen. Now, it's not long before she's caught up in Primus' gooey phalanges and is placed on Zola's examination table. Now, our Nazi scientist informs us that in order to fully determine whether or not D-Cell is a mutant he's going to need to carve into her head and check out her hippocampus. Which, uh, that's a new one, isn't it? Uh, You know, maybe he should just do, like, uh, the Sebastian Shaw thing, go his route. Maybe just kill D-Cell, see if she could be resurrected, and if she can, hey, all doubts eliminated. She's definitely a mutant. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, Now, as this is going on, Juggernaut's eyes begin to glow bright red. This takes us back to Flashback Land wherein a fully repowered Juggernaut is faced with Sidorak itself, and he rejects Sidorak's control. He claims that since he got his unstoppable powers back all by his lonesome, he owes no debt to Sidorak. And so, from this point on, Kane Marco will be responsible for all of his actions, good or bad, and will not do anyone's bidding. This brings us back to the present, where Juggernaut busts out of his bindings and easily mops the floor with Primus and Zola. He finds out that, uh, well, 
our big boss is in yet another castle because Zola is actually working for another. Someone who he's quite scared of, and uh, he's scared that uh, this other person will kill him if he squeals. Zola again talks about how valuable D-Cell is as a mutant, to which she, she proclaims again that she is, in fact, not a mutant. Kane vows to protect her, whatever the case, and uh, to chat up the actual Big Bad next issue. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we'll be heading into the Wild Hunt with New Mutants number 14. Whatever the Wild Hunt is, I know uh, I played Witcher 3, which is called the Wild Hunt. Wild Hunt. I don't think it's that, though. So we will find out next episode. But for now, let's talk about Juggernaut number 4. And like I said at the start here, one of them good news, bad news situations here. This is it's a fun and enjoyable issue. But it doesn't give us a whole heck of a lot to talk about. We could talk about Juggernaut having his powers, getting his powers back his own way, right? We saw all the trials that he went through to regain his unstoppability and how it wasn't just reliant on Sidorak saying, here's a gem, now you're mine. So that's pretty cool. And I do like that Juggernaut is now uh, like fully in control of his own destiny. I think that's pretty cool, especially if we're going for the re- redemption angle, which it seems like we are. There won't be any sort of... Uh, well, I'm sure there's always going to be a fear of him turning bad again because this is comics, but less of a uh, less of a fear uh, or less of a immediate fear of Sidorak trying to get control, or maybe that'll be the next Juggernaut miniseries. Who knows? But uh, I do like how uh, Kane is now kind of just owning his actions, his behavior here. He even says it as he's walking away from Sidorak. All of my decisions, good and bad are all to me now. So it doesn't say that he's going to be a goody-goody and like a Boy Scout or anything, but if he's good, it's on him. And if he's bad, well, that's also on him. We could talk a little bit, and I mean, this is something that we could probably talk about more probably next issue. I don't know what next issue is all about, but I'm assuming we'll probably be touching on this there as well. Uh, D-Cell's deniability here. She... Proclaims every single issue so far that she is not, in fact, a mutant Despite the fact that everyone else seems to think that she is Now, I like this I like this as a concept since back in the first issue of this miniseries We found out that when her powers manifested It wound up tragically taking the lives of her parents And so, if D-Cell comes to grips and to peace or to terms with the fact that she's a mutant well, I think she she loses a little bit of the deniability there, and she has to maybe not so much accept blame or fault, but responsibility for what happened to her parents. Right? If this is if this power is just part of her, then it's like she's you know culpable for what happened. Whereas she's trying to pass this off as being as herself being a victim of an like a science experiment gone wrong here, which allows her to kind of assuage herself of any sort of blame or uh, responsibility in that whoever, you know, foisted these powers upon her is ultimately at fault for her parents' demise. I like that. I think that's a really cool uh, bit to add to the story here, and I'm wondering if next issue she's going to wind up coming to peace with the fact that she's a mutant, or maybe we'll find out altogether that she is, in fact, not. Or maybe it'll just be left for us to to discuss and think about. I don't know if Professor Xavier will show up in the next ep- in the next issue. 
he very well might. He might say, hey, you know, uh, we, we just lost one in Franklin and we, we're going to get one in you. So uh, we'll find out. But I do like I do like the fact that she is so steadfast in not being a mutant and the way we can kind of wrap our heads around it and understand why she might feel that way. I think that's really, really good storytelling and a neat way to introduce a new character uh, with a little bit of uh, depth, which a lot of these new characters don't get. So this is a, a nice and welcome surprise. Uh, one more thing, the art is uh, still killing it here. The art's very, very good. I think uh, overall, if you're buying or you're keeping up with this Juggernaut series or just checking it out on Marvel Unlimited if it's up there, I don't think you'll be disappointed. I think you're going to have a good time with it. I know I am, and I wasn't expecting to. <laughs> I really wasn't expecting to when we when we covered the first issue. Um, and I was going to you know, put it to a vote and say, you know, who wants me to continue this? I was kind of hoping nobody would want me to. Uh, this is before I read the first issue, of course. I was just like, I don't know if we can do five issues of Juggernaut. After reading the first issue and actually liking it quite a bit, I was pleased that everyone else uh, was fond of it as well and wanted to see coverage continue here. So I'm happy that we're working through this one, and uh, we are just about through with it. So uh, soon enough, we will wrap up this miniseries. But those are my thoughts for Juggernaut number four. Now we're going to hop into the mailbag here, and we're going to start with a very, very important letter here from our friend Damien who is uh, talking about Fantastic Four number 26 and is doing so from a totally different point of view than uh, what I usually approach these comics with. I complained about Fantastic Four 26, right? We know that. I complained. I said it was lazy. I said the demutinifying of Franklin was... It felt like an editorial fiat. It was, again, lazy. It was poorly done. And my complaints stem from a place of like, hey, you're messing with my comics. Now, Damien comes at this from a different place, but a very important place and a place that I am so pleased that he's bringing to my and our attention here because these are things I never thought about. And I'm almost ashamed to say that because as I was reading Damien's letter here, the parallels were um, completely obvious uh, and should have been obvious to me from the start. And I feel like maybe I did coverage of this issue a bit of a disservice in not addressing these things, but I just didn't think of them. I mean, that's no excuse. But uh, I, I want to share this letter that Damien wrote with you all because it's very, very important. It's very eye-opening to uh, to me personally and, and maybe some of you as well. So I'm going to get right into it here. Damien starts with, This issue of Fantastic Four, again, this is Fantastic Four 26, made me really angry. More specifically, one page of this issue made me furious. We all know that being a mutant has frequently been a metaphor or allegory for being a member of an oppressed group. Starting with allusions to anti-Semitism and the Red Scare, moving through the civil rights movement and feminism into becoming an allegory for being LGBT. The recent X-Men Fantastic Four series really lent into the LGBT interpretation of mutanthood. Chip Zarsky was clearly referencing conversion therapy and the push and pull between family and identity in his storyline. Ultimately, we got a happy ending where Franklin was able to be full mutant and a full part of his family. Reed and Sue realized that Franklin could have a life apart from their experience without any loss to the family. I'm going to stop right there because I tell you, we read X-Men Fantastic Four probably a few months ago on the show, and I didn't see any of that. But 
in reflection, it totally is. It's totally there, and I should have seen that. Uh, And I feel kind of like a fool for not seeing that. Damien continues, When we were reading that series, these parallels were not lost on me, and I know a lot of LGBT plus people felt the same. I read a very moving article by a trans woman who was greatly affected by this story. Unfortunately, I can't remember where. I also saw Chip Zarsky reference in an interview that he was intentionally referencing LGBT family dynamics, and Marvel Editorial must have been aware of the response to this series. Okay, I want to pause there as well here, because I mentioned the way I viewed this, right? I complained about this as a petulant comic book fan, so when I saw the scene, in Fantastic Four 26, and uh, I just thought about how all those stories that I grew up reading were not going to be, weren't going to be the same. I could no longer, you know, do my, you know, the 12 fan fiction, you know, that story that I over-romanticize, uh, that concept, I should say, that I over-romanticize from the 80s, um, where Franklin Richard was supposed to play a pretty big role in that. And also, I thought... You know, we read that X-Men Fantastic Four series, and uh, I felt like we wasted our time, you know, doing so, which, in light of everything that Damien's going to say here, is incredibly shallow, (laughs) that I was worried about comic book things, and not really uh, thinking about how a story would affect someone in their real life, how a story might make someone feel uh, more accepted or more at peace or conversely, neglected and oppressed, um, which makes me feel incredibly shallow here. But it's just another reason why I'm so happy that Damien is sharing his thoughts with us about this issue, because I feel like I'm getting a much-needed education here. So I'm going to just continue with Damien's piece here. He says, Then they do this. An all-but-omnipotent patriarch tells Franklin that he was faking it, all the time. LGBT people go through their lives with people constantly telling them that they are not who they are. Just yesterday, I was talking to someone on the bus about the COVID vaccine, and I mentioned that I had no side effects, but that my husband had a fever for a few hours. She felt it was appropriate to say that I should try getting with a woman and that she would pray for me. This was some random woman who I faintly knew because she sometimes comes into the shop I work in and she feels she has a right to question the legitimacy of my marriage. This is a relatively common experience and I live in London where people are generally more socially liberal than many parts of the world. Well, first of all, that really sucks that someone would feel they could say that to you. That is, uh, that's bullshit. Uh, That someone would think they could say that to you. That's just the worst. Let's go to your first point here, though, because I think what you said here is very, very powerful. Someone tells Franklin he was faking it the whole time. And uh, I, I think we've all heard of maybe family members or friends or just acquaintances who will tell LGBT people that uh, they that they have a lifestyle or, or that they're they're living their their lives based upon a choice, which is enough to say that they could choose not to, right? And uh, just as Damien had the encounter on the bus here where someone's like, eh, you should try. I I mean, how? (laughs) It's... I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. That is... 
yeah. Um, I'm going to continue with Damien's letter here. He says, Imagine being someone who is relatively isolated, who has taken joy and hope from Franklin's story. How are they going to feel now? Marvel Comics is standing with all the people who tell us that it's just our imagination. I'm sure this was not the intention. It'll be something ridiculous to do with the Marvel Universe, where they don't want Franklin to be an X-Men character, and they want to keep him affiliated with the Fantastic Four, probably somehow movie-related. But they should have realized how this page links to the previous storyline that was very recent. It's a sign of the lack of diversity at Marvel that no one was able to notice how bad this would play with the LGBT audience. And I will admit that I never put two and two together either. Um, you would think, with the way Marvel, uh, you know, projects themselves, that they would have put a little bit more thought into this here. I mean, I, I keep, I keep wanting to go back to what you said earlier about Franklin being told he was faking it. Franklin was, you know, he was choosing the mutant lifestyle instead of just being a mutant. That's a very powerful line, and. Especially going back to trying to live in both worlds here, being being a member of his family and also a mutant, and being pulled in different directions and having influences on both sides here, and just being very very confused. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't put these pieces together myself. But uh, you would think that Marvel would, you would think they would think, <laughs> you know. And uh, like you said here, it was probably not the intention. It was I'm, I'm almost positive it wasn't the intention. It was just something I think they saw Franklin uh, being a mutant as a, as a comics problem that they needed to solve for some reason right after we have this X-Men plus Fantastic Four story. I don't know what Dan Slott and Tom Brevoort do or think, but uh, it is, it's a bad look. It's a bad look inside and outside of the comics uh, bubble, right? Uh, Damien continues, Of course, when something is bad, we can always rely on Dan Slott to make it worse. On the day this comic was released, fans tweeted about the unfortunate consequences of this story, and Dan Slott insulted them publicly. Hmm, Dan Slott... I do not think he wrote that page in order to be homophobic or transphobic, but he could have held his hands up, explained that it was unintentional, and even crowdsourced ways of mitigating the error. Instead, he chose to insult fans. In particular, he chose to insult marginalized fans who are often abused by other fans. <sighs> you know, um, and I've, I've talked about... Um, Comics pros on social media and stuff like that And how little I care for that And how close we're way too close to these people now I don't know And Dan Slott is, a, is an odd duck uh, Altogether all here um, He is uh, He doubles down a lot You know when he Does something that e even in this case um, Inadvertently Offends or marginalizes Folks Um he will always double down. He'll never, <laughs> he'll he'll never say he's sorry. Um, I was going to try to do some research on this and see see some of what Dan Slott said, but I don't think I have to. 
I don't think that would be helping anyone if I were to share what Dan Slott said here, and I don't think it would help me to know what Dan Slott said here. Just knowing that he dismissed and insulted people who showed a little bit of concern about perhaps their own representation or representation of those they care about and love, and to be slighted by the person who, uh, I mean, we're, we're paying his salary. Well, I'm not, but a lot of people are. But uh, not a good look. Very, very tone deaf. Um, Damien continues, And so I'm angry. Angry that it's still acceptable to drown out LGBT voices. Angry that our bad experiences are mined for story material when it suits them, but dropped without a thought. Angry at the toxicity of much of online comics fandom. And I'm angry that I will never be able to reread any of my old Dan Slott comics without being aware that he is a monumental dick who thinks people like me are beneath him. As Jack Kirby famously said, comics will break your heart. <sighs> yeah, um, powerful letter. Uh, thank you so much for sharing these thoughts with us, Damien, because... This is stuff that I'm ignorant to. This is stuff that I, I, I stay off social media, first of all, um, and I am not uh, part of a marginalized group in any real way. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks were like kind of flipping their minds when Marvel started um, replacing their legacy heroes briefly uh, around the middle of the decade. You know, we had uh, the Falcon as Captain America. Uh, Jane Foster as Thor, Riri Williams as Iron Man, um, and a lot of older fans um, of a certain persuasion were uh, declaring this to be an attack on the straight white man. And I think it's more a case of Marvel overcorrecting and overcorrecting all at once. I never thought that uh, I was a victim of that. And, and I mean, uh, sane people shouldn't <laughs> think that um, All I thought was Wow, they're doing a disservice to all the the minorities That they're trying to reach out to here By doing this all at once So none of it feels special All of it feels manufactured It feels like an agenda Rather than an actual olive branch to people here So I, I never had to deal with something like this And I apologize that you do And, and others do as well uh, Not that you know my apology carries any weight But this was so eye-opening to me, and uh, it really, really means a lot that you would uh, that you would reach deep and, and share this with us because, I mean, that just sucks. That really sucks here. And again, I you know I don't think Marvel did this intentionally. I don't think they were making any sort of statement here, but very tone deaf move and uh, and equally, if not more tone deaf response to uh, the clapback here. Uh, Someone needs to take Dan Slott's uh, Twitter away from him, or just get him off the internet. You know, buy him, uh, buy him like tickets to Disney or something. Send him, send him on a vacation. <laughs> he needs to get some sun. But uh, again, uh, thank you so so much for sharing that here. Um, it really means a lot that you would share this and give me the opportunity to share this with uh, with the great listeners. So thank you. Um, next. We're going to go over to Evan, who's talking about Juggernaut number three. 
Actually, we have two pieces from Evan here. First one is Juggernaut number three. He says, As I listened to your recap, I briefly wondered why Kane wasn't being represented by one of the premier superhuman lawyers out there, Matt Murdock or Jennifer Walters. But Daredevil isn't lawyering these days, and She-Hulk is a bit more savage and a full-time Avenger, so kudos to Nisiesa and Editorial for maintaining continuity over a low-hanging fruit cameo. Very true. Very true, because I was surprised to see... Oh boy, who was it? I don't remember the name. It was it was someone who... I actually looked them up on the Marvel Wiki, and I think they were a side character in like Bronze Age Captain America who mentioned they were going to be a lawyer like in one issue, you know, and uh, Nisiesa pulled it back. If I'm remembering right, I could be remembering. I could be a little bit off here, but I thought that was pretty cool as well. Evan continues, On a related note, the Marvel Universe apparently needs more superhuman law specialists. Glad you stuck with this series. As tired as I am of bad guys going good just because, I enjoy a story exploring how difficult that transition can be. Well, I'm glad we stuck to it as well. And, uh, yeah, the uh, superhuman law is strange here. We don't know what the statute of limitations are. Um... (laughs) That issue of uh, Amazing Spider-Man What did I say? It was uh, That could have been like six days or six hundred years ago We don't know which Somewhere in there for sure uh, I definitely appreciate the transition as well here um, We talked about it a bit today Where He's taking responsibility for all of his actions Good and bad um, And that, that says a lot about The mature maturation of his character here He's not scapegoating Sidorak He's He's doing whatever he can to be as best he can the the way he knows how. So I mean, he's not going to be he's not going to be swinging through the streets of New York with you know snappy banter, you know, catching muggers. He's going to do what he does here. Uh, we see that he's working for damage control, so he does need to make a living, you know. So this is not like an intrinsic good. This is being as good as he can be. So and I like that because it's it's deeper. You know, than just the, okay, I'm suddenly a good guy This is, he wasn't snapped by that Axis thing that happened a few years ago And it's like, oh, I'm good now And I will always be good And I'm gonna help all ladies across the street and stuff like that Uh, Though, it wouldn't surprise me to see an entire issue Dedicated to Juggernaut uh, escorting an old lady across the street Uh, Evan also sent in some feedback on some feedback Where he thanks our friend Damien uh, for some context He says, thanks to Damien for helping me understand, finally, how the big picture of Saturnine's machinations fit with the sword tournament. I got the shattered part of the spell, but it never clicked with me that the tournament provided the necessary crisis to make the other elements work. I can't totally blame the writers for that. Maybe it was obvious to everyone else, too. It was not. (laughs) I didn't know either. So I can thank Damien as well for helping me with the context there, because... I thought we were just doing like hoop-de-doos for no reason here and uh, just eating up pages. But yes, there was a reason for everything. Everything happened because it had to happen for uh, for Saturnine's uh, deal here and for her ultimate goal. Uh, Evan continues, Also, with the benefit of hindsight, I'd like to amend my, a previous statement. The real sword was the Charnel House space station we found along the way. And it was and is. <laughs> 
Thank you so much there, uh, Evan. Thank you for your thoughts on Juggernaut 3. And also, thank you for uh, feeding back on the feedback. I love it when that happens. I, I really I really dig it when we're all talking to each other. It really means a lot to me. It, uh, it tickles me. So thank you for that. And again, thank you, Damien, for your very, very thoughtful letter. I, it really, again, means a lot that you would share that with uh, with the show here. But that'll do it for the mailbag today. Um, if anybody would like to... Uh, to check in and say hi and uh, share your thoughts, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and you can check out all the Chris and Reggie stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 149 of X-Lapsed. We are on the precipice of a milestone, the big 150th episode. And uh, today, to mark the occasion, we're going to wrap up our look at the recently concluded Juggernaut miniseries. Now, this is going to be Juggernaut Volume 3. They're calling it Volume 3, not number 5. It's at a March 2021 cover date. Story is called, I think, A New Beginning. Those are the only big words in the book, so I'm assuming that's the title, though it might just be how we end it. Uh, written by Fabian Nisiesa, with art by Ron Garney. Colors Matt Miller, F- letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January 6th of 2021. Now this one opens with our normal purpley prosy intro, but this time it's maroon letters on white. Our comics content begins two days ago. 
with our titular hero paying a telepathic visit to Krakoa, courtesy of his stepbrother Charles. Now, he's there to talk about taking Decel in for safe haven, you know, keeping her safe. Uh, Xavier's a bit annoyed that Kane may have exposed this potential mutant child to danger, to which Jugs says it's kind of the other way around. They run into Kane's old running buddy, Black Tom Cassidy, who takes a break from Black Tomming, and they share a little nice little reunion here. Now, Tom assures Kane that he's doing the right thing, and ensuring that this potentially mutant girl has a safe place to go if things go sideways. Xavier reveals that D-Cell's powers of deceleration are prohibiting any Krakoan telepaths nor Cerebro from getting into her head. I'm not sure quite how that works, but I suppose we'll allow it. Anyway, uh, Xavier says D-Cell is welcome, however, it has to be her decision. And so Kane is now tasked with uh, attempting to convince her and he's not, um, he's not very confident. Now we shift scenes to the present, where Juggernaut and D-Cell, uh, they're outside of Tucumcari, New Mexico, preparing to break into the Dungeon Max Penitentiary. D-Cell is annoyingly live-streaming the whole thing, as she does. Juggernaut then bursts through the wall of the place, which reveals... Well... Not at all what they were expecting. Uh, you see, this facility simply houses a teleportation gate. Yeah, another one of those. We need uh, teleportation gates in all the books now, apparently. Um, now, this gate takes would take anyone who passes through it to the actual Dungeon Supermax prison. Uh, by the way, they really, really seem to want us to know that this is a for-profit prison. Because, I mean, how dare they? Hmm. Juggernaut walks through the portal, instructing D-Cell to stay behind, and uh, we'll see very soon if that works. Now, on the other end, Juggernaut fights his way through some rent guards until he's faced off with the Warden, which is apparently both his name and job description. Now, he reveals that all of the elite guards of the Supermax have the DNA of both the, vis- the villain Swarm, hence, you know, all the bees on the cover, and the Toad, you know, the uh, little lackey from Magneto, brotherhood guy, long tongue. Sometimes he's a janitor. Anyway, Juggernaut laughs and laughs and laughs. That is, until he gets stung a whole bunch by bees. Now, you see, these bees have a paralytic agent, courtesy of Toad's DNA, which will slow Kane down for a minute or two. The warden then admires Kane's new armor and suggests that, uh, hey, you know, it might just be something they could mass-produce. Now, before you can get too close to investigate, however, he and the elite guards are hit with a wave of deceleration. Now, while the baddies are down, because deceleration put them down, Kane grabs Decel and they burst through the roof of the joint, only to find that the Dungeon Max is a floating for-profit prison hung high above the desert. Juggernaut surveys the situation. He knows that he could survive jumping and landing, but D-Cell, eh, not so much. Even with her powers, she would probably wind up kind of like a pancake. Now, Kane, well, he realizes that they're probably going to have to go up back inside and take their lumps. Or maybe D-Cell can finally admit to being a mutant and thus be granted asylum to Krakoa. This takes us back to flashback land. We go back one day where Kane and D-Cell are having a bite to eat outside the Blue Swallow Motel in Tucumcari. 
and they're talking about the upcoming Supermax break-in. Kane says if he's successful in all this, and he winds up breaking out a whole load of superhuman criminals, he's going to be back, uh, you know, on the other side of the law. He's going to be a wanted man. And so he tells her that she doesn't have to come with him. In fact, he pretty much tries to talk her out of coming with him, but she thinks that this whole thing will be fun and probably thinks uh, it'll get a lot of the clicks when she posts it on her Rocks Tube page or You Rocks or whatever the hell this <laughs> fake YouTube is called. Uh, Kane then informs her about his chat with Charles. He tells her that Krakoa will have her whenever she's ready. This leads to more decel denial of being a mutant, to which Kane says, Come on. That's actually what he says. Come on. Turns out that this was all the persuasion Diesel needed because it's time for the quick and dirty on her origin story. And it's basically exactly what we theorized it to be last issue. Her powers manifested and killed her parents, and so she wanted to blame her power set on some sort of science experiment gone wrong rather than it being like an inborn deal. You know, sort of kind of assuaging her of any guilt And we talked about this And uh, while it, I mean, it's definitely telegraphed I think it's been pretty well done Anyway, we jump back to the present Kane is trying to convince Diesel to come clean As, you know, if she doesn't These baddies are probably going to dissect her Or at the very least run some very, very unpleasant experiments on her And so, she finally comes clean You see, her name is Miranda Manuel and she's a mutant. She requests asylum on Krakoa, and, well, that's all she wrote. That's it. They gotta let her go. There's that whole treaty, right? So we jump ahead two days later, where Kane and Miranda are awaiting Xavier and company's arrival in the desert. Now, Xavier comes through the portal, flanked by Black Tom and uh, some dude, uh, maybe Manifold from the uh, sword book. I don't know, he might just be a random mutant dude, I don't know. Now, Xavier welcomes D-Cell, and she asks if she can livestream on Krakoa, you know, to her Rocks Tube or U-Rocks page or whatever it was. Xavier kind of just, like, gives her the eye, which is all the answer she needs. Miranda and Kane hug, and they part company. She tells him to stay out of trouble, and it, but she's certain that he won't. Juggernaut and Black Tom briefly chat here, and Kane expresses... That, uh, you know, he wishes he could be going with them to Krakoa, to which Tom gives a stern mutants only. And I mean, if we forget about Northstar's husband, baby Shogo, and sometimes Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian, I guess he's not wrong, right? He's not lying. I'm not so sure why they're so adamant about that rule when it pertains to uh, poor old Kane Marco, though. Anyway, uh, Juggernaut asks Tom to keep an eye on D-Cell because... He's guessing she's going to try to bounce just as quick as she can. From here, we wrap up the issue and the miniseries with an epilogue of sorts. And it almost feels like a pitch for a subsequent miniseries or perhaps an ongoing. It, actually, it, it feels exactly like a pitch for a follow-up. Um, maybe even a new take on the Thunderbolts? Or are they still a thing? Hmm? Here, we see Kane hanging out in North Dakota with Arnim Zola and Primus. And they do some hoodoo to reconstitute quicksand, and it's like old home week here on the uh, Juggernaut show here. It's all the characters we ran afoul of over the course of these past five issues. So once quicksand is back in form, Kane lays out his plan. 
They team up, and they attempt to stop their kind, superhumans, from being abused, and therefore abusing each other. And that's that. That's where we end it. We end it with a new beginning. So that's either the title of the issue or just the the blurb for the next issue that is never, ever going to come. Well, there won't be a next issue, but there will be a next episode, and it is the big 150th, and in it we'll be covering the Marauders, and uh, it looks like it's going to be a good one. Really looking forward to chatting that one up, but how about we chat about this? So that was the Juggernaut miniseries. What we all think of that? Uh, well, first let's talk about this issue. Uh, this issue was, uh, it was fine. It was well enough, right? It kind of feels like, and this is purely speculation and me talking out of my ass here, I, I kind of feel like the creators assumed that this would be a six-part miniseries because this one was packed full of hurry-up, wasn't it? I mean, I feel like this Warden character was supposed to amount to a little bit more than a very slight thorn in the side here. I mean, this entire series to this point has been an episodic build to this reveal of a big bad, right? Everybody we've we've run afoul of here has been like, no, no, it's not me, it's the next guy. You know, and we keep progressing up the ladder here until we finally meet the Warden. And, I mean, we have him debut, and he kind of just stands aside in the same issue. It feels a little bit underwhelming, a little unsatisfying, and um, it kind of takes the air out of the... uh, the wind out of the sails, I guess, is probably the better way to put it there. Uh, over what, what sort of a villain this is? Uh, this warden might turn out to be. It just he just seems like an an annoyance, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Uh, now we do get D Cell finally admitting to being a mutant, though I, I mean we already knew that from the get go, uh, and I mean we already theorized the reasons as to why she wouldn't want to be a mutant as well, and we were a hundred percent on the money there. Uh, Now, none of that makes this a bad issue, or even a disappointing one. It's just that it all kind of fell into place exactly where I figure many of us assumed it would right out of the gate, you know? Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the Juggernaut's new team. I understand adding an epilogue like this in the hopes that this might get picked up again later, but um, anybody think it will? I mean, if we if we weren't completionists, or if I wasn't a completionist, uh, would we be enticed at the thought of reading a team book starring Quicksand and Primus? I suppose they, they might show up as villains in a Marvel book somewhere down the line, as, uh, you know, doing whatever it is that they do. And I guess I'll have to rely on you all to let me know if that's the case, uh, those of you who read the wider Marvel universe. So if they show up in Avengers or Defenders, is there a Defenders book? I don't know. Uh, whatever books are out there. New Warriors, is there one of those? No. No, I don't think, I think they, they canned that one. Uh, my main takeaway here from uh, this issue and this series, uh, and being in the X-Men headspace, uh, might just be informing this, why exactly can't Kane go to Krakoa? I mean, we've seen a few times already that non-humans can live there. And now we can certainly suggest that Xavier just doesn't want him there, and that would be understandable from their history. But it doesn't read like that, does it? Instead, it kind of reads as though Nisiesa doesn't realize that there are non-mutants living on Krakoa. And I mean, this is more of me talking out of my ass here. I can't say anything for certain. But it doesn't feel like Xavier's being like dishonest or nefarious or holding a grudge here. 
It just seems as though maybe Fabian got the quick and dirty on Krakoa and just ran with it. I mean, I'm probably wrong. And I mean, it's an easy enough thing to fix. But at least in this respect, it makes for a somewhat questionable read, right? I mean, because not only can can Kane not live on Krakoa, I mean, he's basically told that he can't step foot on it. You know, he can't even visit. He can't just show up. I mean, we saw we saw Deadpool show up, and, and Jeff the Landshark, they, they showed up and hung out for a minute. I don't see the trouble of Kane visiting, but uh, this kind of feels like maybe our creative team didn't get all the memos about Krakoa here, and uh, and rather than coming coming up with a different reason as to why Kane can't go back there, just going with the, you know, no non-mutants allowed. And again, Xavier might just be like, hey, we don't want this guy here. I mean, he does wear a helmet that stops, you know, telepathy. So that might cause a problem for some of the movers and shakers of Krakoa. So that is a possibility as well. I just wish that they maybe, I don't know, maybe, I mean, they telegraphed so much in the series. Why didn't they telegraph that? <laughs> you know, that's left up to our imagination and headcanon, I suppose. But uh, really not much more to say. Overall, I did enjoy this. I enjoyed this issue. I enjoyed this miniseries. I really, really dug the art. Um, I would recommend this to any X fans here. I think you can get something fun out of this. Uh, there were a few eh bits, you know. I mean, that's just gonna that comes with the territory. But for the most part, I had a really good time with it, and I'm really, really glad that uh, you all convinced me to continue the coverage of this miniseries because uh, I think uh, I think we're all better for it, and it does give us a nice little breather between the more heady uh, hox pox docs rock socks situation. So. Really like this. I hope you did as well. If uh, you did or didn't, please feel free to let me know, and we'll talk about uh, contact information at uh, the end of the show here. But speaking of contact, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien talking about New Mutants number 14, which is the first Reign of X New Mutants book here. And Damien says, You're totally right to describe this issue not as a new direction, but as a first direction. New Mutants has been a bit all over the place, so it's nice to see a reason for it to exist. My favorite thing about this storyline is the central positioning of Danny. She was the main character of the Claremont run of New Mutants, and is therefore my favorite character in the book. And you're right, I'm, I'm very happy to see Danny having a more prominent role in the book here, where uh, up to this point, I'm trying to think of anything she's actually done. Um, they did like the they did the poltergeist thing in, in Russia with a. Uh, Cosmar, I think I think Cosmar is the is the new New Mutants name. Other than that, I I want to say that we saw like a panel of her in the initial Hickman arc that just said that she fights bears, because I mean that's like the cheapest of cheap pops when it comes to Danny Moonstar. She fights bears, so it is nice to see her uh, front and center again, and it is really really cool to see this book finally get a direction. It's like you said. It's been just very, very PC uh, to the point where, I mean, if you've been following this show or following these books, you'll know that, I mean, the first arc was interrupted by a second arc, and then we went back to the first arc, and it's just, it was just kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of PC. <laughs> um, Damien continues, I like the idea of the Shadow King trying to get a foothold on Krakoa. I presume he's powerful and powerful enough to hide from Xavier, and it would make sense for Karma and or Farouk to be his way in. And uh, yeah, so I'm guessing the uh, the little shot of Farouk we saw during Empire had to have just been a mistake, right? <laughs> that's gotta 
that's got to have just been, uh, oh, just fill this page with mutants, and uh, here's a list of mutants, just throw them in. Uh, I do like the idea of Shadow King being here as well. He was never, um, it's funny, he was never one of my favorites growing up. He's on that list of uh, villains who, when I see them show up in a book, it's just kind of like, eh, well, <laughs> I'm not really looking forward to the Like, comparing it to someone like uh, Batman, like Raj al Ghul. People love Raj al Ghul. I think he sucks. I think he is very, very boring. So when, like, a Raj al Ghul storyline starts up, it's just like, okay, we grin and bear it. Or we just collect these issues and don't read them. We, get, we, we come back when, when we get something more interesting. For me, the Shadow King is similar to that, where I remember, like, the Psy War we had back in the day. He's kind of dull to me. But the fact that we might actually have an actual, honest-to-goodness X-Men villain, <laughs> I, I think that's more of an indictment on the Hox Pox Docs era, where I see the Shadow King and I see him acting, you know, nefariously and threateningly. It's like, ooh, ooh, this feels like X-Men for a minute. So uh, I'm definitely in. Uh, Damien continues I noticed you were struggling with Karma's family She had a brother who was the villain of her first appearance But I think he's dead The twins are her younger brother and sister Who she left the New Mutants to search for So they are separate I don't remember much about her brother Maybe the Shadow King will return via him He was a mutant so he may be resurrected And uh, yeah, I don't I couldn't say uh, with any certainty If... If this has anything to do with her brother I just assumed, because I remember that was like her That was kind of like the albatross around her neck, right? <laughs> so she had these like these twin siblings or I, I always knew there was some sort of a family dynamic there And I actually have their first appearance That uh, I think it was the last issue of Marvel Team-Up Or was it the last issue? It might have been the last issue of Marvel Team-Up Before it uh, turned into Web of Spider-Man but uh, I, it's been ages since I've looked at it, and it's unfortunately not in the house that I'm currently living in. So I cannot double-check that. So if anybody has any more insight on that, please feel free to let us know. Uh, Damien continues. Talking of resurrection, the whole discussion around the resurre- resurrection of clones was a great way of introducing Scout to the team. As I recall, valuing fairness was a huge part of her character in Wolverine. I love seeing sympathetic characters who are questioning Krakoa. I wonder if we'll see Mystique gather some of them together to burn it to the ground. And I really think that's where we're headed here. Um, maybe not so much with Mystique, but I think there will be a... I think there's going to be a group of doubters. And I think Mystique could definitely infiltrate and exploit the doubt, for sure. But I do think we're going to see more uh, of our sympathetic characters here thinking that maybe things aren't on the up and up, or maybe starting to... Because, I mean, we talk about the, what was it, the X, X cubed, right? Where it was like all about the world mind and the phalanx and uh, just assimilating into a world mind here. If we have characters who are clones who really don't have any real stakes in Krakoa, because if they die, they're not coming back, or it's questionable whether or not they'll come back, they'll probably be less likely to assimilate, if they can control it. That is so. I think uh, I think that could be a really good inroad to shining a light on some of the doubt here. Having a character like uh, like Scout, uh, I don't know what X twenty three. I mean, X twenty three is sometimes a clone, sometimes not. Sometimes she's a genetic duplicate. Sometimes she's a daughter. It's it's weird the way they they really present her here. But it could be interesting. Could be very interesting here. Um, 
And it's funny, I was thinking, we found out that, you know, Mr. Sinister has the uh, the black market clone farm, right? What if he has a Madeline in there? I wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, surprise me if he had a Madeline Pryor in there. What if he decided to just, uh, I don't know, hatch her and let her strut around Krakoa? I mean, that could be, uh, that could open up some interesting things here. So I do really, really like this. I love the fact that none of the other New Mutants wanted to answer the questions. And like Magic was just like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, everything will be okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I thought that was really well done. Very, very subtle, but also very, very telling. Really, really good stuff here. Now, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until Jonathan the Wolverine and Jeff the Landshark get a spin-off miniseries, Make Mine X-Lapsed. And I'm assuming Jonathan the Wolverine is Scout's pet, who I think when we covered uh, the, the Scout appearance in Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, I think I called it like a bear because <laughs> it was really, really not drawn so well. I'm like, she's got like a pet bear or something. But uh, I, think that's, I think that's Jason the Wolverine. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the first Rocks issue of New Mutants. Uh, next, Evan talking about a very dicey issue here. Uh, Marauders number 16. Now, we've talked a little bit about this in the feedback already, and uh, now it's Evan's turn to share his thoughts. He says, Oh boy, did I not enjoy this issue. I did agree with most of your points of, discuss- of discussion, though. I think and hope the creative team has more in store than a one-off revenge porn story. I get that Shaw earned his comeuppance, but what Kitty and Emma did and Storm signed off on went way beyond. This wasn't heroes defying the odds and righting a wrong. I mean, this was a wild issue, wasn't it? I mean, it's, it totally hit me by, uh, by surprise that we were actually going down this route. And... Uh, it was very, very brutal. Um, I, I, you know, I think I talked about this when we covered the issue here. It's like, how do we, how do we walk this one back? Uh, can we? I mean, Emma's twisted and has been twisted for a long time, but uh, having Kitty do this and Storm uh, be there to watch it all go down, that's going to be uh, a tough one to sweep under the rug. That's going to be... Uh, that might have been... You know, unknowingly, a very seminal issue of this run where it's going to be something we're going to be pointed back at at some point to be like, see, this is where you should have known that uh, things aren't exactly what they seem. It's very, very weird. Evan continues, The only time Shaw has seemed legitimately threatening to me is when he took down the cartel so effortlessly in New Mutants. Beyond that, I constantly wonder why so many movers and shakers on Krakoa find him to be a necessary evil. I know he had influence, but he strikes me these days as a has-been. Even when he killed Call Me Kate, it felt like a broken clock being right twice a day, like the chaos of everything else going on fell into place rather than Shaw being a master manipulator. And I agree. I agree, because that, that was like so much happenstance was involved in that here. It really did seem like he lucked into the whole situation there with... Uh, with Pierce, uh, uh, the Executioner, and uh, what the hate manga was the hate was it the hate manga? I don't remember, but it was someone with the Executioner. It didn't feel. It felt like more luck than skill here, and I mean, I have been, you know, I, I went on a hiatus from these books for a little while, so I don't know if Shaw has been like reaffirmed as some major evil and major threat, but. Uh, but when I left, he was kind of, like you put, he was a has-been. I want to say the last time I saw him, he was like an amnesiac hanging out with the young X-Men. 
Anybody else remember that horrible series? Yeah. But uh, I never really see him as much of anything now. So it is kind of strange that uh, that the Quiet Council does view him as uh, as such a uh, necessary force here. It's very, very strange. Uh, Evan wraps up with, If they show the fallout from this, as you suggested with Cypher's reaction, that could make for an interesting story. And yeah, I, I totally agree here. I hope that that is the way they're headed with this. Um, and I'm fairly confident that they will be, because uh, the the shot we did get of Doug, I, I don't think that was by accident. He definitely looked very disappointed in Kitty, and uh, I think that this could be revisited down the line here, and it might uh, even like stoke some... It might stoke a schism in the Quiet Council here if they can't trust one another. And more to that point, uh, I still wonder why Xavier and Magneto didn't didn't press the issue. It's like, hey, we're down to 10 members here. One of them is now in a totally different state than we knew. What happened? I just don't see them dropping it the way they did, or at least as easily as they did, which was really, really easy. <laughs> but uh, I want to thank you so much, Evan, for sharing your thoughts on that very, very challenging issue here. I'd love to hear more thoughts on that issue because it was a weird one. It was definitely a weird one and definitely a divisive one. So thank you for that. And uh, we are going to wrap up with a letter from Jesse talking about Generation X Volume 2, Number 1, which is part of our Sunday special series where we're taking a look at Generation X Volume 2. And it gives me the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about the Sunday special series, which I don't know if folks who listen to the main show know or care about. Uh, Every Sunday... We take a look at a, a shorter subject from my hiatus from the X-Books here. So not the main books, not the Hox, Pox, Docs, Rock, Sox stuff. But going back a little bit here, uh, the Generation X special is the fourth such special. We started off with uh, a look at the Major X miniseries and Major X Lapsed. From there, we went to Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, which took a look at the uh, Phoenix Resurrection Return of Jean Grey miniseries. From there, we did x Nation, which was a look at the Extermination miniseries that finally sent the Time Displaced Original 5 back to the past. So now, the fourth one is Generation x It'll be that way for the next, uh, I think, ten weeks or so. I'm not loving it. <laughs> I'm hopeful that I'll come around to it, though, here. But now, let's hear Jesse's thoughts on the first issue and first episode. He says, Good morning, Chris. I hope the move went well. Ah, we're still in the middle of the move. I don't know that the move will ever end at this point. Uh, we've been moving for over two months now. But <laughs> hopefully, hopefully at some point it'll be over. But uh, but thank you. Um, Jesse continues. You must have known the excitement I would exhibit when I saw there was a Generation X lapsed. But the drop in my gut when I noticed that it was Volume 2. Either way, I'm going to go back and revisit to see if my opinion has changed now that the story's complete, or if it still disappoints me. As I went through issue one, I tried to look past the art style that I had a, uh, that I had very little interest in in the past and focus more on the story. I was able to follow the story better this time and didn't hate it quite as much. The art was actually not as bad either, even though I still don't like it. Textures of things seemed, seemed off, like the grass looked more like fur. That's very, very true. There is some very off anatomy and some faces that are extremely ugly in the same panel with faces that are well-drawn. 
I totally agree with the with you on the art here. The art is very um, what is the word I'm looking for here? Uneven, uneven here. Because you're right, there are some faces that look great next to faces that look like uh, like something that you'd scribble on your your trapper keeper. It is very very uneven art. It's not definitely not my kind of art here. Um, I don't know what they're trying to evoke, but it really just doesn't. It, it doesn't rock my socks any. Uh, as for the story, you know, I thought it was followable enough. It just uh, just isn't very good. <laughs> it's kind of boring, and uh, I really think that they are appealing to a a fandom that doesn't exist, a readership who is just not interested. Um, Jesse continues. The covers are beautiful for the whole series. I'm glad they got the Dodsons back to do those. And yeah, the uh, the covers are very very nice here, which. Only makes it uh, all the more jarring when you open it up and it's not Dodson art on the inside. Uh, Jesse continues. Seeing all the different students in the background from the previous ten years was a fun surprise. You see glimpses of Ernst, Rockslide, No Girl, Grey and Pixie, and more. I'm glad to see Jubilee and Chamber in the book, even if they are the only two originals to show up at this point. If I remember correctly, Chamber is the only remaining male character from the original Generation X runs team that is still alive at this point. Artie, Leach, and Franklin were just wards and not part of the team. And you see, I'm kind of of two minds uh, when it comes to, you know, seeing these characters in the background like that, because I feel like so many of these characters, even going back to the Morrison run where they were, where many of them were introduced, they've basically just been background characters. I mean, Pixie got her little uh, miniseries, that Pixie, was it Pixie Strikes Back, or am I conflating that with Gwenpool? <laughs> I don't remember, but... uh I think uh, an Eminem wrote that, I believe, and it wasn't half bad, if I remember right. But for the other characters here, it's a lot of just background characters, and here they are again in the background. Uh, it's cool to see them. It's cool to get the little uh, little callbacks, but at the same time, it's just like, okay, are we going to do anything with them? I'm not confident that they will, and... Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm just not confident that they will. And it was nice seeing Chamber back, even even though I feel like they are kind of playing fast and loose with his relationship with Jubilee a little bit. I think uh, they were attempting to present them as being uh, much better friends than they ever were, because I don't remember them being all that close. And here it seems like, I don't know, maybe it's like that thing where uh, after you graduate high school and then like people that you never talk to in high school suddenly like, try to find you on Facebook for some reason. Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. Uh, Jesse continues. Overall, I did like this better reading at this time, but it's still on the level of cruising around with a giant ferret Generation X, rather than finding Toad chilling in Emma's house Generation X. And uh, I'm trying to figure out now if this is better or worse than the Puka. <laughs> I'm going to have to reread the Puka and, uh, and put them uh, head-to-head here. Again, I'm only two issues in to this Generation X run. Hopefully it gets better. Hopefully I come around to it. Uh, Jesse continues. Before I go, a little bit of trivia on the Generation X Ashcan edition. There are actually two different versions or cover versions of this out there. The first was possibly a giveaway with it just having an, having the words Ashcan edition on the cover in yellow. The other has 75 cent Ashcan edition in purple on the cover and a UPC on the back. I found my first Ashcan in 1995 at a comic shop in a mall, and I thought I hit the jackpot. It may just have character sketches and info on it, but I still love to look back on oddities like this. 
Okay, now none of you guys know this, but I just stepped away from the microphone for a few minutes to dig up my Ashcan edition to see which one I had. <laughs> um, it is the yellow one. I've got the yellow, uh, no price on it, just a yellow Ashcan edition on the cover, and uh, it is really, really cool. As a as a fan of you know the X Men and of comics ephemera, I love stuff like this. This is the sort of stuff that really gets a. Uh, Gets me excited about the hobby um, It's the stuff that you don't see all the time, right? I mean, we can go onto social media at any time And we can see all the covers of the books that came out today Or this week And Lord knows about 15 people are going to post the cover to Batman and the Outsiders Number one, any given day on, on, on the social medias But uh, stuff like this is very, very interesting It's stuff you just don't see People don't really talk about it all that much It's just really, really cool to... Uh, to have a little bit of the history there And uh, especially with Generation X Since it was the first time I ever heard the term Ashcan used I'd never ever heard the term Ashcan Until uh, the lead up to Generation X And it is just always kind of It always kind of bothered me that I never had it I do have the uh, like the collector's special thing that they, they put out It was a full size you know comic trim uh, little booklet but uh, I, it always just felt wrong to me that I didn't own the Ashcan Since it was so much part of the build for the uh, release of that series At least that's the way I remember it I could, uh, you know how we are when we're kids We, we over-romanticize <laughs> over certain things And uh, even at, you know, 40 years old I still over-romanticize a lot of things Just like this Ashcan, which I'm very, very jazzed to have right now but uh, Jesse wraps up with, So until Jubilee and M become BFFs, make mine X lapsed. Well, let's just hope when M makes an appearance in Volume 2 or the Legacy run that uh, they actually uh, you know, pay some heed to the fact that she and Jubilee never really got along because I'm not confident that they won't be BFFs <laughs> as we get into that. But uh, thank you so much for uh, both listening to and commenting on the Sunday special episode there, Jesse. It really, really means a lot. I don't really get much feedback on the Sunday show, so it's always really, really cool when I do. So thank you. But uh, that is where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, if anybody would like to uh, chime in, join the mailbag, maybe talk about a Sunday special, please. Feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And, uh, hey, while you're there, got something new over there. I uh, kind of uh, hinted at this a couple episodes back, maybe, maybe just one episode back. But uh, in order to give a little bit of context to some of the current... Year goings on in the X books, I've decided to do a uh, series of articles, and they are called X Lapsed Origins. And we are starting with, uh, well, our home away from home, one of our very favorite places. We are going to start with Otherworld. That's right, we are going back to the UK Captain Britain strips from uh, 1981. This is uh, pre Alan Moore. We're looking at the Dave Thorpe stuff right now, which has Alan Davis on art. Some really, really cool early Alan Davis art here. And uh, we're going to just learn. We're going to learn together here. I, I've It's been so long since I've read any of these things, and uh, I feel like maybe I've done a disservice in not uh, delivering all this information. So I think this is going to be a fun little endeavor here, and I hope folks listening who are interested uh, maybe uh, stop by the blog and check out those articles here. This uh, Captain Britain run, uh, we, it might take several months to get through, which uh, I'm really looking forward to, actually, because it's this is a, 
a run that I've been looking for an excuse to revisit. So I get to do that now here and present it as a as a mixed media sister program to uh, to, to the main X Labs show. So. We're going to meet Saturnine, we're going to meet Mad Jim Jaspers, we're going to meet the Furies, we're going to see a little bit of the uh, the formation of the Captain Britain Corps, we're going to learn about the Crooked the crooked London, which I, I think is uh, where we get the Crooked Market in Exitens from. It's going to be a good time. So uh, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. So far I think there are three or four articles up. I'm trying to do them... Several times a week. So far, they've been daily, but I can't promise they'll always be daily. And uh, they're they're short because uh, because this I mean the strips are pretty short too. They the longest Captain Britain strip that I've seen so far has been eight pages long. The shortest one has been about four. So they're quick, breezy reads. But uh, we're learning a lot as we work through it here. So Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com for some X lapsed origins. Uh, you can also go to xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for more of the show stuff. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com or any noise aggregation device and application that uh, you might like, because we'll probably be there. But that will do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for listening and, uh, I suppose, uh, putting up with that, that those shilling plugs for the website there. <laughs> so thank you all so, so much. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh